Welcome to Wanda's Picks, Black Arts and Cultural Program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices, we are never victims. So we should exercise our options and not give in to despair. And we are joined in the studio today, um, this morning, by members of the Transformative Prison Working Group, to talk about the TPW campaign to restore rehabilitative, rehabilitative achievement credits and a call to CDC to move ahead with their request. And we're going to be talking about a lot of other things like um, COVID-19 and how it's become a serious issue in the facilities. Um, so first of all, I want to let you know who's in the studio with me, and uh, we're not going to read all of their bios just yet, but I just want to just call their names so they can say hey <laughs> and tell us a little bit about themselves. Um, um, first, I want to start with Kenneth E. Hartman, um, an award-winning writer and prison reform activist. Um, good morning, Kenneth. How are you? Good morning, Wanda. I'm doing really well, thank you. I'm uh, really excited to be on the show with you and uh, excited to talk about uh, changing the way the prison system operates. Right. Cool. Thanks. Good morning. And we are also joined by Ella. Um, Della, how do you pronounce your last name? Turin. Turin, yes. An artist, entrepreneur, and student in the Ph.D. program in visual studies at UC Irvine. Her research focuses on black feminist theory and media culture, um, and um, she's up to a whole lot, and we'll read her bio a little later on. Um, good morning, Ella. Good morning, Wanda. So good to hear your voice. <laughs> good, good to hear yours, too. And we have Ayla Benjamin, um, is the executive director of Buddhist Pathways and a member of the Transformative In-Prison Workgroup Leadership Team. Um, good morning, Ayla. How are you? Mm-hmm. Didn't hear you. Uh-oh. Ayla, are you with us? I'm I'm with you. Can you hear me? Oh, I can hear you now, yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, good morning, Wanda. Thank you for having us. Good morning, welcome. 
And uh, and we have Edwin. Um, good morning, Edwin. How are you? Good morning, Wanda. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself? I don't have a bio. I'd like to give give a one-liner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm part of the staff for the TPW uh, community organizer, and such an honor to be part of this, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Okay, cool, cool. And we have Cecilia Perez. Um, uh, I think you're with Homeboy Industries. Uh, you want to give us a little something about yourself? Because I don't have a bio for you either. Yeah, I'm, um, my name is Celia Perez. I, uh, I'm working with Homeboy Industries, and I'm a transgender woman that did 28 years in a male facility. So most of my issues have to do with trans rights in prison. Okay. Cool, cool. Welcome, welcome. And I believe we have Alan Burnett. Um, is that correct? Oh, I thought we did. <clears throat> Let's see. Maybe not. Oh, wait a second. I think that might be Alan. Hello? Hi. Is this Alan? Yes. How are you? Okay. Good morning. I'm good. How are you? Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Alan Burnett. Uh, I was originally sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. I served 28 years and eight months. In uh, September of last year, Governor Newsom commuted my sentence, and I've been home now for roughly four months now. Uh, what I'm doing right now is I'm a student. Um, I'm going to graduate my uh, bachelor's degree in the next semester. I'm going to go on to uh, pursue my master's degree at Cal State Los Angeles. Uh, I currently oh, work wow. with Project Rebound at Cal State LA. Oh, congratulations. Wow, welcome home. You are just so busy. Wow, so happy to have you join us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, no problem. <laughs> So we're going to circle back around to you, Ken, um, because you are my, my gateway into this conversation because we have been talking for about a week now <laughs> about about TPW, um, which now I can say, um, uh, you know, more easily than I could when we first started talking. I was like, oh, that was that meeting we had at the, at the Green Lining building. Like, how long ago was that? Was that two years ago? <laughs> I, I know, right? It, feel, it feels like forever, doesn't it? It really does. God. Mhm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, let me read read your bio completely, unless you just want to just tell us about yourself. That might be a little more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 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 happy to do that. Um. Okay. So, uh, like like Alan, uh, who who is a very close friend of mine, and and we served a lot of time together. Uh, I mm-hmm. was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. I served 38 years from the age of 19 years old. I have been out now almost three years. Um, while I was in prison, I wrote a couple of books. I wrote a lot of articles in newspapers and magazines, and I was heavily involved with prison activism while I was in. Um, and since I got out in December of 2017, I've been involved with both uh, prison reform activism prison abolition activism, and also uh, working with reentry populations, helping folks when they get out, you know, readjust to the world and, you know, and get back to being, you know, regular folks in the, on the planet with all the rest of us, which I think is, you know, should be the goal of our system. 
although it doesn't often seem that way, frankly. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, <clears throat> and Ella, um, I uh, I met you um, in Philadelphia at the um, <clears throat> Inside Out Prison Exchange 20th anniversary, I think. Was that the 20th anniversary or 25th? Uh yeah, yes it was. Mhm, right, right, and and then and then I was so lucky and blessed to have you as one of the facilitators for the training that I took um, in Southern California a couple of years ago. So um, so anyway, tell us a little bit about yourself. Unless you rather I just read your bio, you tell me. <laughs> I can talk a little bit about uh, about myself. Um, I am also on the leadership team of the PPW. And I work with the Inside Out Prison Exchange Program, which is based in Philadelphia, but is an international program. Um, We train um, faculty, community, folks, um, returned citizens, students, um, in this methodology of uh, taking and teaching classes, um, college-level classes, uh, with college students and incarcerated students together inside um, prison facilities. So I've been a trainer with them for um, over 10 years, and um, it's work that I find really rewarding, um, and it's powerful just to bring people together in dialogue um, to to bridge common understanding. Um, And I do some other work with with groups um, such as the um, Hearts for for Healing and Justice Network. Um, I'm an artist, and as you mentioned, a student in the Ph.D. program at UC Irvine. So I wear a few different hats. Right. And what's your medium? Oh, many things. I'm a writer, actress, uh, visual artist, kind of dabble in a little bit of everything. That's why I don't call myself necessarily one of those. I just say I'm an artist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice, nice, great. Thank you. Welcome again. And Ayla? Um, do you want me to read your bio, or would you like to tell us about yourself? I'd be happy to tell you a little bit about myself. Um, okay. So my name is Ayla. I'm the executive director for Buddhist Pathways. Um, this organization brings meditation programs and Buddhist services into California prisons. Um, and I have worked in uh, the prisons teaching meditation and yoga and facilitating emotional intelligence programs, um, and most recently uh, working with the TPW um, around advocacy efforts to increase the access to programs, um, especially during this COVID-19 lockdown. Um, and aside from the prison work, um, I, too, am a creative and a yogi and um, a big nature appreciator. Hmm. Great. Thank you. Well, welcome again. I, I remember um, your workshop from the, uh, the meeting in Oakland a couple of years ago. And uh, I'm trying to think, did I go? I think I went to, your, to the breakout. And I thought it was really, really helpful and gave me some tools uh, that I could use outside of, of the convening. So anyway, thank you, and it's so good to be speaking to you again. Thank you. Sure.
So, um, so Ken, I think I'll, I'll circle back to you. So why don't you um, maybe tell us about um, this call to action and um, a little bit more about about the um, Transformative Prison Working Group, and then we'll, you know, and we could go around. Um, everyone can who wants to have some, you know, um, uh, input on 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 the question of what is TPW and the campaign to restore rehabilitative achievement credits. What does that mean? And uh, and you could couch it within you know within the pandemic, which has really changed access for those of us, our people that are are locked up and locked down, like. There is, well, from what I hear from people that I'm communicating with, there is no programming, at least not the way it was before. And then perhaps, you know, like you could speak and then you could say, okay, and you can invite in another person so we don't run into each other. Um, You know, my voice is that is. Got it. Thanks, Wanda. Yeah, so, Mm -hmm. I mean, just really quickly, the the TPW, um, it was started by uh, a group of, community-based organizations that these are people who go in and provide transformative trauma-informed healing programs inside a prison or what, or what we could say uh, would be like, you know, actual rehabilitation programs, you know, we're trying to go in and help people become their best selves. Um, these are the programs that we believe and we think the reality, particularly those of us with lived experience, you know, these are the programs that actually help people and actually help people, you know, get over the, often the terrible traumas they've experienced in their own lives and, you know, the harms that have been caused to them and they've caused to other folks. And this helps people grow and become better and, you know, and be able to get out and stay out. So we, 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 as an organization, we are a collective organization of close to 50 now close to 50 community-based organizations that provide these kinds of programs, every prison in California. Um, We, our folks serve tens of thousands of people and then, of course, as we all know, in March, everything ground down to a halt and all programs stopped. And just to back up a second, Prop 57 passed in California, and it allowed for people who are taking the kind of programs that our member organizations provide. It, it allowed them to, uh, to get basically time off of their sentences for participating in these kinds of programs. And these are not necessarily feel-good programs. These are often the toughest things that people will do while they're inside. These are the programs that get right to the heart of what's going on inside of someone. And, and we do have people on the call who have gone through these programs and experienced them. And uh, I'm, I hope uh, we can, they can tell us a little bit about what that's like and how it really changed their lives. But when the program stopped, that meant those, that ability to provide that rehabilitation on the one hand and on the other hand, the ability for people to earn time off of their sentences and get out quicker stopped. And we as an organization have been negotiating with the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation in California for over five months. We have been entered into what we believe was a good faith negotiation to help find a way to reinstate the ability of people inside to uh, get this rehabilitative achievement credit, help them both get the rehabilitation that they desperately want and need and also get time off of their sentence to help them get out of prison faster. And of course, in the time that we're in right now, getting people out of prison faster is just plain common sense. We all know the prisons are overcrowded and we all know that a grossly disproportionate number of people have died in prisons because the way things are, they're crowded. People are right next to each other. It's really impossible to socially distance inside prison. 
So we went in this negotiation with them for months. We finally said, hey, come on, what are we going to do here? And they offered a potential pilot program that might affect up to 10% of the people in prison over a two-year period. And we just said, that's not good enough. We, we have to do better than that. We believe that the department can do better than that. They have the authority to do better than that. And we are now basically saying publicly and through our our friends and allies and our friends in the legislature, uh, you know, and in the media, thank you, Wanda, for this opportunity to, you know, uplift this problem. You know, this is a time for the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation to step up, get outside of their normal boundaries and say, hey, you know what, we're going to make this work. We're going to use correspondence-based programs to provide this rehabilitation during this pandemic, this extraordinary moment to allow people to have access to rehabilitative programs and also to have the opportunity to get out of prison quicker, which we all know is the right thing to do. So um, I think that's pretty well encapsulates what's going on. And I, as uh, you know, I'm a staff member with the TPW. I want to pass this to uh, one of the members of the leadership team and, and maybe they can, you know, call on the folks that uh, with the lived experience of having participated in the programs that the, our people provide, you know, how it's changed their lives. But I'm going to pass it to Ella and, uh, and Ella, maybe you can, uh, maybe you can take it from there. Sure. Thanks. Um, Ken, I think um, everything that you said has been on point, and I just want to underscore some of the things that you mentioned, especially the piece about um, how impactful these programs have been to folks inside. As somebody who has um, been um, a facilitator of programs, I personally know um, how much it has impacted just myself even, but also um, folks who are inside. And, I, and we've heard lots of things uh, from people who we know about how um, the lack of this programming has really created a void inside for people who depend on these, um, these programs. So it's really important and not difficult um, to reinstate these in different ways. As, as the rest of the world has been adjusting to the pandemic, we have, uh, we and all organizations have been working diligently to adjust as well, and they're ready to go. Um, and so all we really need is a green light. And I also want to um, underscore, besides what you said, Ken, about it being the right thing to do, but this is also something that the state has been actually working on in terms of releasing more people. They've already released a number of people um, because there has been pressure to do so, and especially with the spread of COVID-19 inside, um, it has really pressured the department to think about ways of decreasing the population, and this is just one other method to be able to do that. So not only will it reach that goal that the CDCR itself has, but it will also be saving taxpayers' money, um, it will create safer environments, both inside and outside, and ensure that people are able to come back home and contribute and be part of their communities. Um, so there are lots of reasons why this, this is just a common sense. It's low-hanging fruit. Um, and that's why we're, we're really advocating for it to happen. Um, so I want to um, now pass it to Ayla to see if you have anything to add. And then I think um, having the opportunity to hear from folks who have actually experienced these programs would be a great way to just bring what we're saying to life. 
Great. Thank you so much, Ella. Um, so one of the things that I want to add um, for some additional context for folks is a little more information about just what this change means and the type of impact that RAT credit has. So um, for starters, there are currently about 90,000 people inside of prison who are eligible for RAT credits right now. Um, people who are not eligible for RAT credits are only people who have a life without parole sentence or are on death row. Um, so there's a lot of people who are eligible for RAC, and people are able to earn up to 40 additional days off of their sentence each year um, by participating in RAC programs. Um, so sometimes it's helpful to get those numbers because, again, it's very concrete how much time people are not able to earn right now. Um, and then the other piece that I wanted to add is um, a little bit about, you know, what it would actually take to change um, the current status of RAC. And it's really quite simple. So most things that we do with the CDCR are very complex and take a lot of work and effort and approval. Um, but this could actually be approved by something called an emergency regulation, um, which the secretary of the CDCR has the power to make at any time. It really is actually a simple um, a simple regulation change. Um, so with a signature, Kathy Allison um, could change this for, you know, the 90,000 plus people in California who do not have access to RAC right now. Um, so I just wanted to uphold that because I think it's important for people to know that it really comes down to a signature um, for the CDCR to make this change, which would be so highly impactful for so many people. Um, and then now I'd love to hear from some folks about the impact um, that RAC credit and programs in general have on folks. And um, let's start with perhaps Alan. Could you jump in now, Alan? Okay. Yeah, so um, like I was saying earlier, I just recently was paroled uh, really back in June. But from my experience as being a part of the programs, the programs had a tremendous impact on the way that I viewed myself and then the men around me while I was out at Lancaster. Um, originally, when I came to prison, I was 18 years old, and at that time, prison was one of those places where it was a lot of racism, a lot of violence, and I went from prison to prison with that same mentality because there wasn't any programs. And when I got down to uh to CSP Los Angeles County in Lancaster, they had a lot of volunteers coming in and they were bringing these type of programs into the facility. And I learned a lot about myself. And I think um, the benefits of those programs is just being in that space and being able to connect with another human being who you otherwise wouldn't have that opportunity with being at another institution. So for me, like, the program's kind of put me in a situation where I had to take a real long look at myself and try to understand how I got to the point where I can harm another human being, and it helped me to be able to change the way I think, the way I interact with other individuals. And the impact that it had on me, I began to see that on other people that I was housed with. And what it did, it created this culture of, of healing, of people helping each other, like this strong brotherhood. And that made it possible for me and a lot of other men to come home 
And in that process, like the men that have come home because they went through these programs are doing tremendous things out here in the community. And we get together every now and then. We have conversations on what our lives is like, and we always compare it to, like, some people who've never been to prison, who've never experienced these programs, and realize, like, okay, they need to take a couple classes. But overall, like, what I can really say about those programs, they really changed my life. Uh, I, came to, I came to prison. I was an alcoholic. I was involved in gangs. I was violent. I hated myself, and I hated everybody around me. And it came out with my interactions with everyone I was in contact with. And that's what made it easy for me to, to murder another human being. But the programs are the thing that changed my life. They put me on this course to become a better person. So and if I had one program to, to pick in particular, I probably couldn't. But I know, like, you have volunteers, like, that were coming in and they were teaching alternative to violence, which is a, a program that helps establish, like, this community of healing where you get to know people. Uh, the Catalyst Foundation was another awesome program that was coming in and they were teaching this. It was trauma-based, trauma-informed, and it was a healing program. Uh, we had just, and then with the education program, we had the volunteers coming in and doing that too. So, like, all these things just culminated into this one big space for all of us to change our lives. From my experience and my perspective, I think it's extremely important that these programs continue, even if they have to be in correspondence. I talk to men uh, weekly that are still housed at that institution. And the one thing that they're missing is the programs. And without the programs, everyone's antsy, everyone's agitated, and there's starting to be like uh, little pockets of violence and acting out going on there because of the programs. I have to equate that to not having those programs. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty much um, that's it. Thank you, Alan. Um, uh, Cecilia, would you like to go next? Talk about yeah, sort of, um, um, the impact of these programs. Mm-hmm. Um, the impact these programs had on me was I went to prison when I was 17 years old. I was a kid, and I was I went in as a as a angry, violent gang member who had no idea who I was. I just identified as being a gang member. I didn't know anything else, and I didn't really care for anything else except that, and I acted out that way for my first 20 so years in prison. Um, I entered into one of these programs and the next thing you know, I started seeing other people changing their lives and it motivated me by hearing these stories in these programs, seeing that there could be a different version of me, an actual individual version of me. And it, it, these programs actually helped me clean my own identity and step away from the gangs and become the person I, I was able to become when I went to boarding and got a parole date. But if it wasn't for these programs, I was, I didn't even know that I was okay. I was okay with who I was. I was okay with being that violent person, being that, cause I didn't know there was another person there inside of me. These programs helped me realize that there was so much more to me and it motivated me to do more. And without these programs, I wouldn't be here today. Thank you. Do you want to um, highlight any particular program? Um, I mean, the first one that that, that opened my eyes was uh, CGA, it was, uh, Criminals and Gang Members Anonymous. It 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 um I tried AA, I tried NA, but when I went to CGA, I realized that I was addicted to a lifestyle of of gang membership and criminality, and it helped me climb out of that and become my own person. 
I mean, before that, I was okay with just being that gang member that everybody knew. I was actually happy with that recognition because I didn't love myself or I didn't care about myself. But once um, with that program, it, 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 it helped me claim who I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and how long have you been free now? I've been free for three three months. Mm-hmm. After 28 years. Wow. Wow. Yeah. How's that been for you? Um, at first it was a little rough, but I've been getting my stride. I work at Homeboy Industries, and I like the work I do here. We help people. We help people find that identity as well. We we run the same groups here. So I enjoy the fact that I can actually still keep doing the good work that those programs offer out here. Mm-hmm. Right. Cool. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> and Edwin, why don't you Hi. share with us uh, sort of the impact of these programs on your life? Yeah, I would, I would glad to. Um, first, just want to give a little background. I'm a refugee from the Philippines. I came to the United States when mm-hmm. I was 11. And... Um, just just the the way I adapted to the United States, the new culture and and basically didn't didn't even want to come to my America and I lashed out and I didn't have the tools and I was scared I was even I felt unsafe at home. So I I, I gravitated towards the same type of people and at sixteen years old I committed the most heinous act I think I could anybody can ever commit. I took a life. I took I took a life and at sixteen I was sentenced to life in prison. And the week I turned 17, um, I remember my first uh, celly in, um, in a maximum security. He said, kid, you're going to die in prison, so do everything you can to make a name of yourself. And basically, I took that to heart because I was just a scared little kid and just trying to survive. So for 15 years, I did everything I can to put to make a name out of myself and then just be another part of the, of the environment, prison environment. But there was, there was this lady that... Um, she asked me um, if I wanted to work in a canteen. I said, "What?" And but she said, "There's one, one, um, one, only one way you can go there is if you, if you join AA." Just because I was a town, I was basically the yard drunk. So I joined AA, and and I think that was pro- probably one of the most impactful thing I ever did. Just sitting in a circle, just just hearing other people go through what I went through is is such a profound, impactful uh, revelation. It nourished a connection and and feeling not alone and, and that's what groups really is is it's ability to be okay with yourself it's ability to know that you know what you're not alone and when people come from the street and when they look at us the way they look at us and 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 believe in us that we started believing in ourselves we started believing in our humanity and because for for many years i really felt like i was i was the biggest mistake you know anybody can ever feel i really felt that I wasn't making a mistake. I, I just felt like I was a mistake. And, but they made me realize, you know what? What I did is not the worst version of myself. And I can be better. And they, get, they, they made me feel better. And, and, and I built from that. That's the foundation I built from those groups. And then just sitting there and from them, sitting there across another person and them being vulnerable and, and me seeing them as a human being made me disarm any hostility I had with, with other nationalities. Because prison is, is race-based and and boundaries and barriers and all that. But sitting in a group, sitting with men and, and women and then exposing themselves, opening their heart and and let, and being okay to be hurt, it just made me realize, made me build more empathy and compassion. And, and, and then I started really thinking about the people I harmed and I started taking accountability. 
and responsibility, and I started having purpose. I remember I got out 10 months ago, and um, I remember I was telling my brothers in there, I was like, you know what, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that I'm going to give back because I can I acknowledge you guys are suffering. I acknowledge what you guys are going through. So that's why I believe the only way I can really give back is to make sure that they get what I had when I changed my life, the programs. Because without that programs, we're just going to go back to the old conditioning, the old learning conditioning we had growing up. And, and programs teach us there's more. There's more to life. There's more to life. And it's okay to stand still and feel the hurt. It's okay to face the hurt. It's okay to be wounded. And we don't have to lash out. And people is going to support. And knowing that other people is going to support me and other people is going to be there when I fall, it means so much. And I can start standing by myself. And I can be, I can be resilient. And basically, that's what the program is. And, and with the rack curate coming around Prophet to Seven, and, and one thing I noticed is a lot of people was going there, you know, at first because, because they want more for themselves. But when people started going there and rack curated, and they, they went through what I went through, just sitting there. And then the, at first, it was more of, okay, maybe I can earn some credits to go home early. But when they sit there and see, man, and, and see how powerful the group is, then they start transforming. Just them sitting in a circle, it means so much, and it's like magic. It blossoms and nourishes somebody. So that's why I, I believe and advocate so much of the importance of, of, of um, programs inside and Iraq credits because the majority of us is going to go home, and it's so essential for us when we go home we have that tool because we're going to go, we're going to face the same harsh situation, harsh, harsh decisions we, we, we did before we ran. Now with programs, we can have that tools to face it. Without that tools, we're just going to revert to the old learned conditioning. So I appreciate, once again, I appreciate the opportunity to, I'm very passionate about the programs. And, um, and Ella, can I turn it back to Ella? And, um, yeah, wow. Thank you, Edwin. Um, Edwin, what's your last name? Uh, Paragas. How do you spell that? P-A-R-A-G-A-S. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I, I didn't have a last name for you. <laughs> Sorry about that. Wow, wow. Yeah, before we um, pass it back to um, to Ella, um, I was just thinking, wow, um, 16, you were 16, Edwin, um, and Cecilia, um, you were 17, and Alan, you were 18, and Ken, you were 19. I mean, you all are like kids facing all that time away from your loved ones. Forever, because you know you had life, and uh, wow, and then and then um, you know when uh, Ayla mentioned that ninety thousand people are eligible for RAC, but then there are the people that are not eligible, the people that I think you said were on death row, and there was another population that wasn't a, wasn't um, eligible, and and so I was wondering, um, well, one is like, gosh. I'm sure, you know, you're sort of representative of the majority. And two, the question is, what happens to the people that are not eligible for RAC credits? What do they do with themselves? Um, I can answer that. Or go ahead. Someone else can go. No, no, no. I was going to say that there's, I think that's a great question because um, I think there's a, at least from my perspective, what I've, what I've noticed is that people um, have a have a misperception of what folks inside are doing. 
Um, and there is a lot that happens besides programming. Um, actually, the folks I know who are inside are some of the busiest people I know, and that's saying a lot because I'm pretty busy. Um, but maybe, Ken, you can, you can shed some more light on that, but I think there, there is a lot that people have going on. <clears throat> and so even besides um, the programming that we're talking about, um, you know, everything being at a standstill is really, as, as uh, many folks have mentioned, um, it creates a, a kind of nervous energy inside um, that is not really healthy for folks at all, besides the fact that, you know, the virus itself is what it is. Um, so, Ken, yeah, you can, I would love to hear more about your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, thank you, Ella, and, and thank you, Wanda, for that question. I think it's really insightful. I, I, there, it, is, it, is, it, is a tr it is true that there is a certain percentage of people who are not eligible to receive RAC, Although, although I'm fairly certain one of those groups are life without parole people, which is about 5,200 people. And I can say as someone who had life without parole, and I know Alan uh, also had life without parole, people who have life without parole participate in those programs as much or more than anyone else because, they, because the reality is virtually everyone in prison wants to participate in programs, wants to do positive, productive things, wants to work on themselves, wants to become a part of society. You know, uh, just recently, the folks up at Lancaster where Alan and I were, the guys on the yard during the pandemic raised money, which they sent out to the streets to buy lunches for nurses at a couple of different hospitals because they wanted to say thank you to the medical community for the work they're doing in our communities. And the nurses were blown away. And I, I, was, I got nominated to sort of represent the guys back on the yard and I went to the, these two different hospitals to, you know, present the check and bought them Subway lunches. And, but, I mean, it, it, like I told them at the time, it's a symbolic gesture. But what it really is saying is, is that people inside a prison are human beings. They care about what's going on in the world, like all other human beings. And they want to be a part of the good that's going on in the world, like all other human beings. And I think that our program providers, what they fundamentally do is, they go in to talk to the best parts of the people that are inside, and I mean by that the best part of each individual, and help that best part of each individual become the best part and the most powerful part of that person. And I think that's why these programs are so powerful and they're so important. And one, one sort of side, little side note is I learned this from when my sentence was commuted. You can, you can sort of get the rack that you didn't get while you were taking the programs after your sentence is commuted, which is a, a little small consolation prize, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, I think that's what it's about. And I think Ella is right. There's a nervous energy of folks who want to be doing things right now. And we have a whole bunch of program providers that want to help them do something useful and positive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Ayla, as, as um, you know, one of the service providers, you know, on this call, maybe you could talk about, sort of, um, you know, what you've learned, you know, as a provider, um, and, and Ella, you are as well, um, you know, in in the system of um, of incarceration, and, and, and then also, um, what do you want our listeners to do? Like, give us something to do. Thank you, Wanda. Um, so... From the perspective of a service provider, I loved what Ken said about how we go in and we get to talk to 
kind of the best parts of <clears throat> the individuals we work with. And one of the other things we really do, especially um, specific to my programs, Buddhist Pathways programs, um, we come in equipped with tools, meditation, mindfulness, um, yoga, you know, somatic tools to help our groups develop um, more skills that can be useful when having to live in such a stressful and traumatic um, environment. And so in particular, right now, we are very anxious to get reconnected with our groups because, again, we provide tools and support and um, safe spaces within the prisons where people are able to let their guards down and connect and process what's going on in healthier ways. Um, and so, you know, we feel really strongly that, you know, our programs, all programs are needed now more than ever, um, you know, just as with folks on the outside and in the free world, um, this has been an incredibly stressful, unprecedented time where most of us have really had to uh, double down on our self-care and, um, you know, things that help keep us in balance and stable and mentally well. And um, it's really, it's really disheartening to know that our programs are not able to get that type of support right now. Um, in addition to not being able to earn time off of their sentence to be able to go home sooner. Um, so that's, that's part of it. But um, from the perspective of actually going inside and leading these programs, another thing we are able to do, I really believe, is to kind of restore humanity, um, kind of going both ways in the sense that many folks have a certain perception of what it's like to be in prison or what people who are in prison are like. And we get to completely dismantle that perspective and see, you know, the real humanness, the real human nature, the good parts of our participants. And our group participants are able to connect with, um, with other parts of the community. So people on the outside and be able to build these connections and build support and really, um, really know that they're not alone, that they're supported and that there's a lot of people who care about them. Um, and so one thing that might be worth mentioning right now too, is again, we've been, um, We've been pushing for the CDCR to give us more access to programs to provide these RAT credits and to allow for mail correspondence programs to run effectively. And um, even so, you know, we've had all sorts of troubles, even with getting mail in and out and correspondence. Um, so some of the actionable items, I think I might pass it to Ken um, for that piece, but there's definitely things people can be doing, including putting pressure on um, our legislature and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation to take a more humane approach to um, working with our prison population. Uh, so I'll pass it to Ken, though, about what are some concrete steps and things that um, listeners can do to support our folks inside right now. Thanks, Ella. Or thanks, Ayla. I'm sorry. Um, 
Yeah, so I think right right off the bat, uh, Wanda, I think exactly what Ayla just said. I just want to really amplify that. Uh, the, probably the most powerful thing that your listeners can do, uh, particularly your listeners in the state of California, is they can contact their local uh, state assembly person and state senator, and they can say, please encourage the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation to reinstate with Rehabilitative Achievement Credits, or RAC, RAC. Uh, that's probably like the biggest thing they can do. They could also call the governor's office and they could say the same thing to the governor and they can call the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation directly and they can probably leave a message with somebody, but they can say, hey, why aren't you providing uh, good time credits for people to participate in the kinds of programs that we, the people of California, voted overwhelmingly in favor of through Proposition 57? Why did you stop doing this? And I mean, I think these are steps that folks can take like today. They can, as soon as they're done listening to this program, they can pick up their phone, make four or five phone calls and have a real impact on what's going on. And the only other thing I would add to that is, and this is more of sort of a little bit more long-term, is they can think about how they can directly support some of these programs that we represent. Because at the end of the day, these programs, most of them operate on a shoestring budget. Many of them are led and or have strong uh, influence with formerly incarcerated people, and uh, they need all the support they can get. Uh, but I would also, I'm sure Ella, who is, uh, probably has a lot to say about this too, would also like to add in on this actionable thing too. Ella? Yeah, I, I really support um, what you and Ella have said, um, especially the piece about supporting the organizations, whether it can be amplifying the work that they do, you can go on our website, tpw.org, to see the list of organizations. Um, so whether it's providing financial support or volunteer support, some of them are looking for volunteers. Um, and, you know, even that is hindered by the fact that we're kind of waiting to see, you know, how things are going to move forward. But um, uh, pressing your, your elected officials, for sure, but I think also um, having conversations with, with other people about what you've heard today, about the stories um, of folks, both those who are providing, uh, facilitating this work inside and folks who have um, been on the receiving end. Um, you know, going back to our conversation about the perception of what happens inside, um, one, of my, one of my dear friends, uh, Tyrone Wirtz, who um, did over 30 years um, in a facility uh, in, in corrections in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania. He talks about the walls that are that are up, right? The walls are meant to keep people in, but they're also meant to keep people out. And the more that we don't know what's going on inside, the more that we um, uh, feel like it's not our responsibility to know, the more things can be allowed to happen on our watch because it is our taxpayer dollars, right, that are going towards these things. So educating ourselves about what's happening and then having conversations with other folks um, to help educate them about what's happening um, I think is really important in being a really educated public so that we can support um, are our returning citizens and these organizations that are doing this work in any way that we can. Okay, thank you. Um, 
Would um, see Edwin, uh, Cecilia, or Alan? Would you like to add anything to um, to what people can do to support um, you know uh, this particular um, initiative uh, to um, to restore the uh, rehabilitative achievement credits? Yeah, um, this Edwin. Um, basically, uh, they pretty much explain what the main parts of um, what you should do. But uh, the only thing I can really say is that I just plead. I just plead just to get, just to get fed up enough that you know the the injustice of of how they constantly not looking at human being. Be fed up enough to move, and that's all I, I'm pleading is just to move and just do something. Just pick up a phone or something and just like you know what. We humans, we deserve better, and we humans, we should treat each other way better than the way we treat us and how we look at us. Just just build that tension just to be moved, moved to do something, and that's all I can basically say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would just add, um, just to share, you know, whoever's listening, to share what you heard today and help change that narrative about, you know, about the people on the inside um, that we are – we are, and I still associate myself with having life without the possibility of parole. It's still a huge part of my life, but just to share that there are people on the inside who are capable of change and don't buy into just what you see in the media that's negative about, you know, people serving time, because there are people in there who have done work, who have stepped to the uh, stepped into that occasion to become better individuals, and that's that's what I would add. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I would say pretty much the same thing. Just use the voices of the voices you have. The more voices that speak, the more times they'll be heard. And share some of these people's stories in there. Humanize them. Talk about some of the great things they've accomplished while they've been in there and the changes they've done. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Thank you, Cecilia and Alan, Nedwin. Um, Ken, we uh, we wanted to make sure that we talked a little bit about the California ballot, um, and maybe even the national one. You know, uh, that has you know some initiatives on there that uh, speak to what we're speak what we're talking about now. This topic about incarceration and human rights. And so um, you mentioned a couple your couple of initiatives, I believe that you're really passionate about. But I want to, um, so I want to start with you, but then um, others can um, can chime in, and hopefully everyone uh, who can uh, has registered to vote because um, we're getting our ballots through the mail, and I got mine the other day, so now I need to study and figure out what I'm going to vote on and who I'm going to vote vote for. Um, so anyway, go ahead, Ken. Okay, thank you, Wanda. Uh, so. I want to be very clear that I'm speaking as Ken Hartman only, not for in behalf of any organizations. Uh, but um, so one of the things you just said takes me to the first one, which is Prop 17, which would restore uh, voting rights to people on parole, which uh, feels like a no-brainer to me. We're the only, uh, you know, so-called democratic country on earth that says people can't vote because they're on parole. And in many states in this uh, country, people can never vote again if they have a felony conviction. And we all know that grossly disproportionately impacts people of color and primarily black people. Um, In California, I'm on parole right now, so I don't get to vote. 
I wish I could, but if I could vote, I definitely would vote yes on Prop 17 and then Prop 20, uh, which is basically a funded by a bunch of regressive, uh, unpleasant people to try to roll back a lot of the criminal justice reforms that we have collectively as a state moved forward over the past five, six, seven years, trying to roll that back, uh, you know, jack up the, you know, the system of mass incarceration, again, grossly disproportionately impacting people of color, I would vote a strong no on Prop 20. And those are the two that I have a a strong uh, opinion on, and I'll be happy to pass it to Ayla. Thanks, Ken. Um, I, yeah, I, I back what Ken says and just to kind of keep driving the point home about, you know, what we talked about here today is actually a really easy change for the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation to make. Um, and so, you know, as we're thinking about actions for people, um, you know, just to keep that in mind that it's, it's a really simple change. It's a Title 15. It becomes effective the day it is signed. It takes one signature to do it. Um, and it's time. It's time. Um, and But in terms of other voting initiatives and things that are going on, um, some organizations that we certainly look to um, for uh, guidance around voting issues, you know, Initiate Justice has a great voter guide. Um, Justice LA has some great voter guides as well. Um, and I think it's important for people to also know that sometimes the language um, for some of the ballot member me- measures are um, intentionally confusing. Um, so to you know, go to these organizations that have voter guides and can break down what specifically these things mean. Um, but then again, you know, without even needing to vote, you can still you can still have input, you can still make changes, and you can still apply pressure to folks who have power to make these changes that will impact many, many people. Yeah, thank you. Um, Ella? Uh, I just want to echo what um, Ayla and Ken have so beautifully said. And um, the only thing I would add is for folks to, besides all the actions that we've mentioned, is for folks to also pay attention to new legislation, legislation such as the BREATHE Act. Um, and you can go to the breatheact.org to check out what it's about um, in relation to the things that folks have been demanding around um, defunding police and um, pouring more funding into um, care and support in our communities. Uh, so there are lots of ways that you can find out what it's about and also um, take action on that as well. Mm-hmm. And and are you are you saying breathe B R E E D act? Yes, breathe. Yes. Okay. Okay. Great. And um, uh, any any closing um, thoughts? I just want to say thank you, Wanda, for, you know, the platform that you have and allowing all of us to come today to share our perspective and our stories um, about this issue is 
something that's not being talked about as much as it should be. So, you know, as much as folks can, again, um, you know, listen, continue to talk about it, continue to take action on it. Um, this will, you know, ensure that um, everybody is is um, able to access, uh, you know, what they are entitled to. Oh, you're welcome. Um, I was thinking um, in our closing minutes, uh, you know, just, just sort of reflecting again on how young, um, you know, those of you who've had, um, you know, been impacted by uh, the carceral system, you know, who are now um, free, how young you were. And I was just wondering if you wanted to maybe um, uh, maybe talk about some of the organizations, maybe the ones that um, were inside as well, maybe they're working outside, that do some work around prevention um, and education so that other young people like yourselves are not caught up, so to speak, in the net that traps uh, certain certain individuals in our society unfairly. Yeah, I, I can I can say something to that. Uh, I can speak mm -hmm. about the Catalyst Foundation, which operates in the Antelope Valley, which is northern Los Angeles County. Um, mm -hmm. They do tremendous work both in the community and inside the prisons. Um, I I worked with them for years while I was inside. And I worked with them for a couple of years after I got out, uh, helping to set up a reentry program up in the Antelope Valley. But they do fantastic work, both inside and outside, uh, helping folks in in their worst moments and and helping them get to a place of safety and uh, security. So, I want to uplift Catalyst Foundation up in Lancaster, California. Okay. Yeah, they also have a another program um, called Project kinship down in Orange County where they take, uh, I want to say, troubled youth that are like on the cusp of joining gangs and being involved, some of them are involved in gangs, and they bring them together and they have this, this space where they do uh, CGA and they do like a lot of healing circles to try to prevent these youths from going out and ending up in prison to stay on the course of education. They also work um, with uh, Project Rebound out in uh, Cal State uh, Fullerton too as well. Uh, that's just one of the organizations that it's a lot. They also uh, have Words in Cage, who does something with the youth out in the Merck Park. So and that, these programs are definitely needed, uh, something that I didn't have or didn't take advantage of when I was uh, growing up. But, yeah, thank you. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, oh, excuse me. Yeah, just real quick, I just um, – no, just – Facilitating group for the last ten years, and I used to ask everybody: is one, one, if if you could say one thing to a to your twelve year old self, what would it be? And then just and all of them pretty much said just to be seen. And there are so many great organizations that get, that gives that platform for the kids to be seen. And I I just want to um, shout out to Healing Dialogue and Action too. We've been talking to a lot of city officials about incorporating a a healing dialogue, healing circle, basically with city officials and. And community members that was hurt by the by police and and the criminal justice. So I want to give them a shout out, and we we're able to to um, talk to the people that's trying to incorporate um, different different avenues besides California Authority DJJ. They call it now, and so we're trying to you know introduce more healing dialogue than 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 this extreme harsh sentencing they give to kids. You know, so 
just wanted to give them a shout out too. Yeah. So Edwin, um where um where is the healing dialogue in action? Where does that take place? It's it's um they're in in program um uh, providers too, but it's in LA. They're based in LA. Los okay. Angeles. Yeah. So most of these programs are Southern California so far, right? That that I've heard. I haven't heard I mean, um A V P um alternatives to violence program. They're they're you know they're national. But um so far I haven't heard anything in the Northern California. Um is anything up here, um Kenneth? Oh, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of things up in the Bay Area and uh but we're we we the people that are currently on the phone are actually uh Southern California located primarily, although I think I think Ayla's program actually is located in the Bay Area if I remember correctly. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we were in the Bay Area and all over. Um one thing I would just chime in about this, even though I'm not system impacted myself, but just to kind of remind folks how this is such a systemic issue, you know, the incarceration of youth um, is directly related to, you know, this mass incarceration problem we have and over-policing that we have. And so, um, you know, one of the things that people can do or just another thing people can do to try to alleviate this problem is, um, you know, if you have the power to vote, vote. Um, and try to get people in power who see this as a systemic issue and are really actually working to change it. Um, so that's my two cents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I went to the uh, the website for Initiate Justice, and, uh, and one of the, um, uh, the uh, assembly bills that they're pushing is AB 965, Expanding Credit Earning for People Eligible for Youth Parole. And since we're talking talking about young people, um, it seems like something that people should be aware of so then they can get in touch with their assembly um persons for the state of California and uh um and senators because this particular um uh, uh this particular bill allows people to earn credits from their youth offender parole date if that date is sooner than their original parole eligibility date. And it says, under Proposition 57, credit earning opportunities, as we've already mentioned, were created for people positively participating in educational and vocational programs, participating in leisure time activity groups, and for good time. And these credit earning opportunities have allowed many people the opportunity to advance their release date. But these credits were not applied to the earliest possible parole hearing dates for people eligible for youth offender parole. And now these people have the opportunity to move their parole dates forward based on participation participation in programming and achievement made inside. And uh, so I just want to mention that. So who wants to have um, the last word, <laughs> so to speak, until, you know, for now, of course, we can revisit this. And I'd love to have, have you on again, um, you know, to talk about, uh, sort of what's going on. Maybe we could do a check-in after the elections. Well, I guess I guess it's going to be me, Wanda. Thank you so <laughs> very much. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess I was the I was the gatekeeper today to get get you into this thing, and uh, as you put it at the beginning, and 
uh, thank you so much for uh, allowing us this opportunity to talk about something that we care deeply about and uh, and we uh, we're really appreciative of you sharing your platform with us and I'm just want to say thank you so much to everyone that was on today uh, of course Ayla and Ella and Edwin and Celia and Alan thank you all very much um, I hope that we were able to help your listeners uh, get a sense of what uh, the rack credit issue is about and what we're working toward and we just a final note of you know, whatever you can do, whatever those phone calls you can make uh, to your elected representatives, we deeply appreciate it. And thank you again, Wanda. We really appreciate the time we had with you today. Oh, you're quite welcome. And thank thank you, um, you know, for joining us. And thank you, Ken, for assembling this wonderful uh, panel for this discussion of this important issue. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to the next conversation. Great. We are, too. <laughs> all right, you all take good care. Thank you. Okay. Oh, you're quite welcome. Okay. All right, peace and blessings, you. everyone. You're welcome. All right. Okay, bye bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you again for coming on. Bye bye. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bye bye. You're welcome. Bye. Thanks again, Wanda. Bye. You're you're, you're quite welcome. So we're going to play a song by uh, Mama C and Arusha, Tanzania. Come together now. Come together now. Africans of the diaspora. Africans on the continent, I say, come together now, come together now. They sing and rap, and I feel myself caught up in the beat, all goose pimply and possessed. And they are pumping their hands in the air, a sea of bobbing heads. Bouncing to the beat And I'm unselfconsciously Bobbing right there with them I closed my eyes And was transported in time To the 60s I see us in dashikis And bell-bottom pants Carved wooden fists On gold chains around our necks I feel the wooden floor sway and shiver as a hundred feet respond to James Brown shouts of, uh, uh, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. And then an unbridled well bursts through my consciousness, tugging me back to the here and to the now. I shake my head and flowing to the nod of that hip-hop beat. I look around me and see no bright bordered dashikis but the red and black robes of the Maasai. I see beadwork and conga cloth wrapped round the necks and shoulders of young black men and young black women. I see beaded braids and locks and shaven heads and hats embroidered with cowrie shells and paint. 
I hear shouts of pride in Kisakuma, Kiswahili, Kichaga, Kimeru, Kingerlaza, and even French. It feels like a like a church meeting, y'all. A blues hall, a Panther PE meeting wrapped all in one. And I suddenly feel like I'm going to cry or grin or do both with the absolute wonder of it all. I squeeze Pete's shoulder hard as our emotions meet in complete agreement. We thrust our chins out in the defiant stance of bygone days and I can tell he is thinking the same thing that implodes my mind. That panther spirit ain't dead, no way. It just moved around the corner, crossed the ocean, and is still well and very much alive right here in an East African village.
by Humanity, uh, Nana Sula, from her latest album. And I want to remind folks that um, 
the uh, Pan-African Federalist Movement of Northern North America um, Convention, North American Pan-African Federalist Convention, is starts tomorrow, October 15th, and it continues through the 19th. Um, and the theme is African Political Unification for Sovereignty and Upliftment. And uh, and it's going to be uh, an online um, conference, so it's completely accessible. And you can get your tickets by, uh, let's see, how can you get your tickets? <laughs> Let me look and oh, yeah, no, that's not it. Um, if I can find... Uh, the uh, the details. It's going to be really awesome. I'm trying to um, to upload a really wonderful conversation we had last week with um, uh, Baba Mwalimu, uh, uh Edward, and uh, yeah. And so um, I'm trying to convert that to a smaller file. And it's going to be really, really awesome. They're going to have some really phenomenal presenters uh, at this conference, and you don't want to miss it. And it is really affordable. Uh, it is, um, I think it's, um, yeah, Malimu Kwesi uh, Kuyaja Amsata. He was the he's the coordinator for PAFM uh, of Northern California. Northern Northern California, yeah, no, North America, a little bit larger than that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm looking. Uh, oh, here it is. Here's the schedule. Looking to see how you can register. Um, but I'll I'll put a link there. But you could just also look up the Pan African Federalist Movement of North America as well. And let me see. Right now I'm looking at the program. Oh, here's the final program. Let me tell you what's in store for you. Um, let's see. Uh, the theme is African Political Unification for Sovereignty and Upliftment. And um, so Thursday, tomorrow, it's going to be an evening. starts in the evening. And um, so it's going to start with the music and images from PAFM pre-conference Congress in Accra, Ghana. That was um, two years ago. And the uh, the North American um, PAFM conference in Washington, D.C. in May of 2018. And excerpts from uh, Dr. Uwa's interview with Brother Ams, uh, Amsata. And libation, call, PAFM, call and lift their voice and sing. And then there's going to be a welcome by the convention co-chairs, Dr. Uwa, um, Onyo Ha uh, Asimiri, and Brother Sam Collins, who is the coordinator of RCC Washington, D.C. And then at 8 o'clock, it's going to be introduction of the coordinator of the PAFM North America and the uh, North American coordinator will address the mission and history of PAFM, the purpose and goals of North American PAFM Convention, acknowledgement of any guests, special guests, introduce the chair, um, acknowledge the deputy, 
uh, chair and introduce the coordinators for NCC Canada and SCC and LCC from Atlanta, and I don't know what these acronyms stand for, <laughs> Washington, D.C., New York, Rhode Island, New Orleans, and they all get to speak for five minutes. And then there's going to be an introduction of the chief field organizer and introduction of the deputy chair. So we're going to, let, going to learn um, about who these folks are that are, you know, leaders in the movement. And then on Friday, um, the convention starts in the morning, 10 a.m. Uh, Eastern Time, uh, from 10 to 12, and then the afternoon session is from 1 to 4 Eastern Time. And uh, and it, as I mentioned, it goes through um, the 19th, so it's going to be really, really awesome. And on Friday, uh, some highlights are the moderator is Sister Benita Law Diao. She's a field organizer for the New York State Coordinating Committee of PAFM. And the key workshop question, again, is what does the Campaign for United African States need for African people in North America? And uh, and then there's going to be a tribute, a plenary from 3 to 4, a tribute from 4.30 to 5.30. And uh, there are some 50th anniversaries happening this weekend, and one is Oh, actually not 50th, 25th and 50th. The tribute to the 25th anniversary of the Million Man March is also going to um, uh, be highlighted with, um, yeah, with people who were there, like um, Baba Singhor Baye and and Akti um, uh, Kepper Amen, who were there. And there's going to be a reflection on the Million Women's March, 1997, uh, by uh, Dr. Uwa Onyoha Asimiri. And please forgive me if I mispronounced your names <laughs> when you listen to this later. And then at 7 p.m., there's going to be some edutainment, and uh, Dr. Joseph Beasley, Professor Ronoko Rashidi are going to speak. Um, so that's going to be exciting. And then Saturday, there is the, the conference continues again, 10 to 12, 10 a.m. to 12 noon, and then 1 to 4. And um, and the question continues: What shall be the expectations of African people in North America and the U.S.? And um, and a special guest uh, after the tribute. It's going to be a tribute to the 50th anniversary of the Congress of African People, 1970. And the special guest is going to be speaker is going to be A. Peter Bailey, who was um, a comrade of of um, the Honorable. Um, Malcolm X, um, El Hajj Malik El Shabazz, and a different di- additional comments by Baba Mwalimu um, 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 uh, KQ Amsata, who attended the conference as a 23-year-old graduate student, and uh, and then later on that same evening, which is Sunday, um, uh, Sister Malik Shabazz, who is El um, Hajj Malik El Shabazz, is Malcolm X's daughter. Is going to speak along with Dr. Uh, Nkichi Taifa, um, who just had a book come out. Uh, and oh no, oh no, that was Saturday. Really, this is Saturday? Oh my God, Saturday's going to be hecka busy. <laughs> That's October 17th, and then Sunday. Oh my goodness, Sunday uh, we have uh, Baba Mwalimu. Got to say that slowly. <laughs> Kwezi uh, Kayeja Amsata, again, coordinator of the 
um, PAFM North America uh, that morning. He's going to be moderating Workshop 3, Reconciliation, Full Integration, and that's at 1030. And, again, the morning sessions, they start at 10 until 12 Pacific time, I mean, Eastern time, and then the afternoon sessions are 1 to 4 a, one to 4 p.m. And uh, let's see, who are the special guests that afternoon? Oh, so after the plenary, uh, the special guest speaker is Dr. Leonard Jeffries. I know, maybe he is the plenary speaker. I'm not sure. But anyway, he's in that, that particular slot. That's going to be awesome. And then there's a youth uh, segment, uh, Brother Sam P.K. Collins, coordinator, LCC, Washington, D.C. Nice. And then Monday... Oh, Monday is an evening session. Monday is 7 to 11, so it starts in the evening, just like tomorrow is going to start in the evening. And um, and it's going to go till 11 p.m. Eastern Time. And we're looking at, there's going to be a, a grand plenary. Oh, that's the last night, the last day, last night. Grand plenary session um, and a summary and the declaration of action plan moving forward for mobilization and organizing. And then the next steps um, and closing remarks. And, yeah, this should be really good. So, anyway, you don't want to miss this. And let me see uh, if my upload has happened. Because <laughs> that's what I was doing while we were speaking. Um, yeah, and so um, so I can play this um, so you all can hear it. Um, because it was a really, really good conversation um, last last Wednesday. Let's see. Let's see. I don't want to play any more music, although I've got some great, great music. I want to actually play this interview so that you all can hear it. Ah, yes, let's see. Ah, yes, it's all ready to go. So on this particular show, um, we also have um, following um, Mualimu um, um, conversation with um, with our conversation with um, Mualimu. We um, we then shift to a conversation with um, uh, the uh, one, the guest curator and and one of the organizers. For critical resistance, which um, is twenty, I think twenty years old now, maybe a little bit older than twenty, and uh, today concludes a really successful uh, auction, um, um, art auction, and a series of, of really provocative conversations, and and so um, um, you can definitely. Um, Go to imagine freedom or critical resistance, and and I think there's still opportunity to bid on the art if there's anything left. Because <laughs> yesterday was the big night where they had live bidding, and other special speakers came through, and surprises. But um, but anyway, it does go until today. Today is the 14th, and of course you can always donate money. But you know you might want to get some of this wonderful art. So um, so they uh, so we had those um, uh, persons in the studio last week, and we conclude with a wonderful conversation with uh, Devorah Major and Kim McMillan about the speculative um, uh, Afrofuturist 
um, series of conversations that, that Kim organized, and it, the first one was this past Sunday, and they continue, um, I think, for um, a few more sessions. There, there are quite a few others, and so she talks about that. And then Devora shares some of her work, and then she also told us that the International San Francisco International Art Festival is happening this this year, and that is so awesome. We're going to be speaking to Andrew Woods, who is the founder of the um, uh, the San Francisco International Art Festival. Um, we're going to be speaking to him next week because he's busy securing um, he's busy securing permits to be able to um, to be able to host this year's uh, series of of wonderful events and. Uh, so we'll have him on next next week to talk about what they are. And I'm looking to see right now if I can tell you when it starts. Um, yes. Yes, yeah, so it's um it's Saturday, October twenty fourth and twenty fifth and um and it's uh it's outdoor programming and so um there's gonna be the Mission Hot Club on Saturday at the twenty fourth at twelve PM um there's going to be uh, a um uh comedic performance work creatively exploring the exploring the inferiority of what it means to be black in America by uh Nkichi um Imrua, and that's at one o'clock on the twenty fourth it's called license to dry while black and um and there's a really provocative film um presently at um k q e d world about driving while black. It's about two hours, and it's wow! It is such such an eye opener, and I'm really looking forward to watching it in greater detail. I just watched the trailer, but a friend of mine watched it, and she said it really put into context what it meant to be a person of African descent, and um, and and being profiled, you know, based solely on one's 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 uh, pigment and one's race. And uh yeah, so I highly recommend that. And but back to the international um San Francisco International Art Festival. What Devorah told us about was the Speakeasy Storyteller series, which um um uh, Abdul Kenyatta has been curating, I believe, for maybe a few years now. And so um Devorah is one of the featured poets as well as uh Kimi uh Sugioka, um and uh Moth Lamb winner uh, JP uh Freire and um and again um I think Abdul Kenyatta is probably going to tell a story too. I mean even if he is a curator I think he is also going to perform. And then um there's some Pan, uh Patel dance works the long shadow and uh Saturday that same Saturday at 5 p.m. And because everything is on that Saturday, so um, for information you can visit the um, San Francisco International Art Festival, and that website is sfiaf.org to get tickets. And uh, yeah, and I don't know if they're gonna have a um, virtual version of this. Um, I hope so. <laughs> But we shall find out when we talk to Andrew, and you probably can find out when you go visit the website. So I'm going to play this interview with um, Mylimu Edward, and so you can catch this. And 
I will see you tomorrow evening and afternoon for those of us in the uh, Pacific time zone uh, for the beginning of this wonderful conference. You don't want to miss it. Um, So looking at a United States of Africa. You can accomplish what you will. Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Brother Jahahara Okebilan Ma'at uh, with the song that he dedicated to Marcus Garvey. And I was playing it because of our guest we have in the studio. We haven't spoken to him in a long time. But there's a great conference getting ready to happen Um the Pan-African Federalist Movement is presenting uh, African Political Unity for Sovereignty and Upliftment on Thursday, October 15th until Monday, October 19th via Zoom. And there are going to be some really phenomenal speakers, and we have one of them on the air with us right now. Good morning, um, <clears throat> Brother Mwalimu. KQ Amsada, also known as Brother Edward H. Brown, Jr. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. 
Thank you very much, Sister Wanda. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, it's been too long since I've seen you and your lovely family, and you've just been, like, jetting all over the African diaspora, you know, um, doing the things that you do. You were born in Harlem, New York, USA, uh, during the heyday of Congressman Adam Powell, Jr. and Malcolm X. Um, you... Um, were Syracuse University uh, as a uh, 1965 to 1969 as a black student activist and who was a founding member of the Student African American Society. That was in 1967, the father of Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in 1968, and chairman of the student committee that fought for the establishment of the African American Studies Department in 1969. Later in 1978, you earned a master's in public administration from the university's Maxwell School. Um, with regards to the Congress of Racial Equality, um, 1967 to 75, you were the director of political affairs, and you were delegate to the Black Political Convention in 1972, and you served on the African Liberation Support Committee in 1972 as well. You established core as a cons- consultant. Consultative, no, consultative, yeah, <laughs> non-governmental organization uh, with the United Nations uh, in 1973, and you attended the 12th Summit Organization of African Union, of the African Union in East Africa and Uganda in 1975. Uh, you were also active uh, in Trans-Africa, um, 19. 19- 84 to 1991, during the period leading up to the freedom of Nelson Mandela from prison. Um, you were also active in the All African Students Conference, um, May 17th to uh, 19th in 1996 at Temple University. Um, first presentation of a visionary paper, and you're also an author of lots of a book or two or three. Um, but this paper was entitled United Africa by 2020, and here we are in 2020. Uh, the synergy of Garvey, Malcolm, Krumah, and um, wow, you've done a whole lot. Uh, <laughs> so let's let's jump down to um, that. You are the program uh, chair of the 25th anniversary celebration of the African American Culture Society, Palm Coast, Florida, uh, 2016, and the chair of the AACS's Pan African Study Group presently. And you are the coordinator of the Pan-African Federalist Movement in North America since 2015. And uh, you led the North American delegation to the 60th anniversary of the All-African Peoples Conference. And the Pan-African Federalist Movement pre-conference in Accra, Ghana in December 2018. And uh, And we are here today to talk about this conference. So anything that I I, I glanced over, um, you know, please feel free to go back to, but I also want to let our audience know that um, you're the author of the new Pan-African 2020, and it was first published in 2012, and people can get that book and come up to speed on what's going on in the African diaspora around uniting all of us. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. I was going to try and remember who that guy was. We did all that stuff. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Yeah, that was a short version. Like, <laughs> you've been busy, brother. You've been so busy, Walimu. 
Yeah, well, you know, the, the I, first place I admired the song that was that was being played as I was listening. It spoke to uh, uh, <clears throat> Up Your Mighty Race, Marcus Garvey, uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it spoke to Kwame Nkrumah, Forward Ever, Backward Never. And I'm been busy because the work and the vision of uh, Marcus Garvey for United States of Africa, he wrote a poem entitled that 1927, and as well mm-hmm. as he urges people uh uh, that was the major mission of his organization, the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League. The major mission of his organization was to establish a, a central nation for the race. Uh, he talked about the United States of Africa. The poem was written in 1927. And he talked in his, in his basic fundamental essay, African Fundamentalism, he talked about uh, establishing an African global political entity on which the sun shall never set. Garvey's, it was his vision, that was his vision uh, almost 100 years ago. And Kwame Nkrumah, at that conference that you were talking about, that we celebrated the 60th anniversary in 19, 2018, in 1958 at the All-African People's Congress uh, Conference, which brought together the uh, independent countries of Africa. It was Guinea and Ghana at the time, and, and in some countries in North Africa. But 62 movements from across the uh, continent uh, <clears throat> that were fighting and struggling for the liberation of their countries, included people like uh, Tom Aboya from Kenya, who was chairman of it, and even some representatives from North America, Charles Diggs, who was a congressman at the time. But at that meeting, because uh, you got to bear in mind that, that the flow of the liberation movement at that time, uh, Ghana became independent in 1958. Guinea became independent in nine. Ghana became independent in 1957. Guinea in 1958. The conference took place in 1958, December, and then in 1960 there was an explosion, political explosion. That over 18 countries became independent. Uh, those 18 countries will be celebrating their 60th anniversary this year in 2020. But and then another 16 before the decade that the 60s were out. And we weren't exactly twiddling our thumbs over here in North America at the time. But anyway, at that conference. Uh, Kwame Nkrumah said, uh, this is the decade of independence, a decade of African independence, independence now, tomorrow, the United States of Africa. So that's 60 years ago. So we got 100 years ago, 60 years ago. Uh, so I was, uh, and then <clears throat> so in, in 1997, Julius Nyeri, the first uh, president of Tanzania and one of the founding fathers of modern Africa, uh, he, he he remembered, uh, he was giving a speech on the 40th anniversary of Ghana in 1997, and he went back to remembering when Kwame Nkrumah became, when Ghana became independent in 1958 when he was a young person, and he now witnessed over 40 countries between 1957 and 1994 in May when Nelson Mandela became the president of South Africa, the first black president. He's witnessed over 40 countries becoming independent, but he's had a front row seat uh, as one of the um, founders, as I mentioned before, the first founder of uh, the first president of Tanzania and one of the, um, <clears throat> one of the many uh, heads of the Organization of African Unity. So in 1957, I'm connecting him to Garvey in 1927, Haley, United States of Africa, uh, Kwame Nkrumah in 1958. Uh, tomorrow, the United States of Africa. So in 1997, uh, 48 years later, 
He says, and he's 75 years old. He's the eldest African elder statesman at the time, this time. He he passes two years later in 1999. But he gives a speech on, a, on the 40th anniversary of Ghana's independence. And he observes, it's basically, he gives a, a self-assessment of his entire generation of leaders in Africa. And he says that um, they've succeeded in liberating uh, independent countries in Africa, individual countries, and he's talking again from Ghana to South Africa over the last um, 37 years. It's a 37-year period in between those two events. And then he says, uh, but, but, but he says that the OAU, and I'm going to use his words, the Organization of African Unity has failed miserably on the question of African unification. He says that we dropped the ball after Kwame Nkrumah uh, was overthrown in, in 66, um, and we Basically, we, we, we didn't even form an African Unification Committee. We had an African Liberation Committee. So he says they, we, failed the, we, we dropped the ball on that question, and we failed miserably. Those are his words. And he says we, and he's challenged to our generation, and here you get to the Pan-African Federalist Movement. The challenge to our generation is to, is, is to take, pick up that banner that they dropped, that my gener- his generation dropped, and fight for the unification of Africa because Without unity, again, his words, without unity, there is no future for Africa. So that brings us to the mission of the Pan-African Federalist Movement. And the mission of the Pan-African Federalist Movement uh, is to bring the United African States into political existence now. And because we've been talking about it for over 100 years. And we expand the term United African States. Uh, because we include not only the 55 states in Africa, but also the African states in the Caribbean, Jamaica, Haiti, Trinidad, et cetera, and the, uh, excuse me, uh, 48 million, um, 48 million point nine uh, Africans, people of African ancestry in the United States, to over 1 million people of African ancestry in in Canada, so that makes about 50 million African people, which would be like the eighth largest African nation in on Earth, so we also include that population uh, as part of this United uh, African States. Uh, that's how we see it. And the conference that you made reference to, which is going to be taking place uh, October fifteenth to the nineteenth next week, is a visual conference. You could register for it. Um, <clears throat> the theme of that conference is African political unification for sovereignty and upliftment. And uh, I, I could. I could talk a little bit about what we mean by sovereignty and the limited sovereignty that, that African states currently have and what we're trying to, uh, by uh, by having a united African states, which would have 1.3 billion people in it. Uh, but let me stop there, Sister Wanda, because I think I've said a mouthful, so there may be some questions on what I have said. But I was trying to tie together uh, the theme, uh, the song that you had in the beginning, which made reference to Garvey and Nkrumah, and the um, mission of the Pan-African Federalist Movement from a historical perspective, uh, which, again, is to bring the United African States into political existence now. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was, that was, um, well, it, you know, it wasn't an, uh, an undigestible or indigestible mouthful, I mean, because, you know, for those um, of uh, of us who might not know, you know, the details for instance, you know, I wish I had known about, you know, the 2018 um, journey. That that would have been really nice to go, 
you know, to honor, you know, this particular important anniversary and, and to be in uh in Ghana, you know, in Accra, you know, for for that particular, you know, gathering. So, yeah, so yeah, I would like for you to continue uh, telling us about the Pan African uh, Federalist Movement and this conference that's coming up and who's going to be speaking and what you're going to be talking about, and then some more about your work. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the um, the trip to Ghana in December of 19, I'm sorry, 2018, uh, which again was 60 years after the uh, All African People's Conference, which I made reference to earlier, where Kwame Nkrumah said, tomorrow the United States of Africa. It was the 60th anniversary of that conference, uh, but it was also the uh, pre-Congress of the um, <clears throat> Pan-African Federalist Movement. We had originally thought that we were going to have it in Senegal in, 19, in 2017, uh, but circumstances were that we couldn't do it that year, so we decided to do it in 2018. And once we did, we noticed that it coincided with the um, – uh, 60th anniversary of the All African People's Congress. So we worked with Samaya Nkrumah, the daughter of Kwame Nkrumah, who was the head of um, the Kwame Nkrumah uh, Association, uh, the co-sponsor. That, 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 so, we, so we tied the two events together, our, po- our pre-Congress and uh, the 60th anniversary. Uh, we say pre-Congress because the plan is to have a global Congress, uh, probably in 2022, uh, 2021 at the earliest. Uh, and, and at that Congress, um, the people from the Pan-African Federalist Movement from across the globe will be getting together. I mentioned, or uh, you mentioned, but I'll, but I'll uh, restate that I am the coordinator for the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm the coordinator for the Regional Coordinating Committee for North America. And North America includes the United States and Canada. That's about 50 million African people. Uh, but there are nine, eight other uh, regions. Uh, this is the North American uh, region, uh, <clears throat> Regional Coordinating Committee. There's a Regional Coordinating Committee in the Caribbean. Uh, there's a Regional Coordinating Committee for uh, Latin America, which includes all of the uh, Spanish and Portuguese countries in, in, uh, in this hemisphere, in the Western Hemisphere. And then there's an, on the continent of Africa itself, there's a regional coordinating committee for West Africa, which includes all of the countries in West Africa, Southern Africa, uh, Eastern Africa, Central Africa, North, Af- North Africa, and on the, also in the European. So each of those uh, countries have a, um, a regional coordinating committee, just like the one we have here in North America. And we meet together on the International Preparatory Committee uh, once a month, the first beginning of the month, and I talk with my counterparts who are also, you know, from these other areas. So, uh, in the, in, we have, in the major mission of the International Preparatory Committee, uh, which we got from that conference in in, uh, in in Ghana in 2018, is to plan for this global uh, Pan-African Federalist Congress, uh, which I, you know, so. Each and so steps on the way would be we're asking each of the regions is supposed to have a constituent assembly, which we're calling a North American uh, Pan African Federalist Convention, which is taking place next week. Uh, 
as a, it's one of the steps in terms of preparing uh, the interests and looking out for what the interest is of the, of the African people in our respective areas. So our convention, uh, uh, what we calling it? Yeah, we calling it a convention. Yeah, our convention uh, next week will be dealing with uh, three basic questions, and for each day, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, there's going to be a workshop around each one of the questions. And the first question is, what does the campaign for the United African States need from African people in the, in America, in North America? There's going to be a workshop just dealing with that on Friday. <coughs> the second question is, um, what shall be the expectations of African people in North America from the United African States? And there's another workshop on that on Saturday, just dealing with that from 10 o'clock into 12 o'clock. Uh, and then from 1 o'clock until 3 o'clock, and then from 3 to 4, there's going to be a plenary uh, session bringing it all together. And that's the structure for each of the days. On Sunday, we'll deal with the third question, which is, what will be the rights of African people in North America? Uh, or how will the rights of African people in North America figure into the Constitution of the United African States? <laughs> so. So those are the three basic questions that we will be dealing with at this convention, uh, whose, again, the theme is African political unity for sovereignty and upliftment. And I'm, I wanna, and I'm gonna come back to sovereignty after, after this um, uh, brief statement. <clears throat> so we will be having, <clears throat> so those are the three basic workshops. In addition, um, we're gonna have uh, on each of the days, uh, the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, we're going to have a after the workshops, which is a central part of the, the meeting. I mean, again, that's from 10 o'clock until, until uh, uh, around 4 o'clock. Uh, after that, around 4.30 or 5, 5 o'clock, we're going to have a tribute, one-hour tribute to what I'm calling the uh, 50th, uh, the 25th, uh, the 50th, and the 100th. The 25th on Friday is the 25th anniversary of the Million Man March. Uh, on Saturday, it's going to be the 50th anniversary of the uh, Congress of African People uh, uh, meeting that took place in Atlanta in 1970. And uh, one of our guest speakers, A. Peter Bailey, uh, who worked with Malcolm X and, and has a new book getting ready to, getting ready to come out very soon. He was the, uh, one of Malcolm X's bodyguards. And he's an active member of the Pan-African Federalist Movement. He was with us in Ghana. Uh, he's going to be uh, leading that discussion because back in 1970, in September, he wrote a nine-page article in Jet Magazine just on the Congress of African People, that, that meeting in 1970, which brought together uh, African people from all over, the uh, African leaders from from Mama Baraka to Ralph Abernathy, Jesse Jackson, Roy Anderson Corps. Uh, he was there. And I was there also, ironically, as a 23-year-old graduate student uh, by the university, uh, the black organization, Syracuse University. But by that time, I was, a, I was more sophisticated. I was a grad student. Uh, so anyway, I was at that conference in 1970. So, so on Saturday, we have an attribute to that 50th anniversary. And then finally, on Sunday, uh, remember I said 25, 50th, and 100th? On Sunday, it's the 100th and a tribute to the 100th anniversary to the uh, first 
convention of African people of the world. Uh, mm-hmm. First convention of the uh, but, but the term then was the Negro people of the world. That was the convention that was called together by uh, Marcus Garvey and the Universal Negro Improvement Association uh, in August of uh, 1920. And that was a convention, by the way, that brought together uh, <clears throat> uh, over 25,000 people from 40 different countries, uh, African people from 40 different countries, and they met for the entire month of August. Imagine just a convention from the entire month of August, August 1st to August um, uh, 31st. And August 17th happened to have been Marcus Garvey's 33rd birthday. He was 33 years old when he was doing all of this organizing. Uh, oh, but that wow. convention, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, that convention was historically significant because uh, it established the red, black, and green uh, Pan-African flag, which we all use. That that was a resolution that came out of that convention uh, 100 years ago. It is it, it, it writ it wrote uh, a bill of rights for African people, both here in North America, which dealt with all of the issues that we were dealing with, from segregation to lynching uh, to all of the other. Uh, degraded issues that we've been facing in North America for the past 400 years, but it also dealt with the rights of African people globally. In fact, you got to bear in mind that Africa was at its nadir at that time. Uh, in African people, we were at the height of uh, Jim Crow in uh, North America. The Reconstruction period had ended. There was no no representation in Congress, and we were being lynched left and right. And Africa was fully colonized, with the exception of Ethiopia and in, in, uh, uh, Liberia. So you had a situation where uh, Africa's fully colonized, we're fully uh, uh, oppressed in, in the United States and in North America. And we managed, the Congress manages to bring together, the, the Marcus Garvey and the Universal Negro Improvement Association managed to bring together a conference in 1920, which, again, uh, delegates from 40 countries across the globe, African delegates, and they met for the entire month of August, and they deliberated over these these questions. Uh, the, what are the rights of African people established the, the um, red, black, and green? And they also elected the first provisional president of Africa. And Marcus Garvey ran against a Dr. Lewis from Nigeria in a democratic election. I stress that because people say, well, he appointed himself. No, there was a democratic election by this convention of 25,000 delegates representing 40 different countries across the globe uh, meeting for the entire month of August. It was a democratic election. I mean, you consider the fact that African people were completely under siege at our nadir in Africa and here. And if you could pull together 25,000 delegates for the entire month of August to deliberate on the issues of African people in 1920, that was a legitimate election. So I recognize Marcus Garvey as the first uh, provisional president of Africa. Our challenge in this generation is to bring the United African States into political existence, and I intend to be in Africa, and you with me, Wanda, uh, sometime in this decade, hopefully earlier in this decade, but definitely before the decade is out, to watch the, the United African States come into political existence and see the first the, the first um, uh, president, permanent president of the United African States put a hand up and take the oath of as, as president and at that point, she'll be president of a, of, a, of a global political entity that Garvey talked about on which the sun shall never set with 1.3, more than 1.3 billion people. And we will be able to look China in the face, India in the face, Europe in the face, 
and deal with them as a as a global political entity of African people. So, uh, um, <clears throat> so remember the, the theme of the convention is um, African political unification for sovereignty and upliftment. Uh, that will once that political entity comes into existence, it will be dealing with uh, the sovereignty of African people from a much stronger position. Because even though I mentioned over that 37-year period from a Ghana's independence in 1957 to South Africa's independence in 1994, uh, first president of South Africa. Even though the 40 countries became independent, it was really flag independence because uh, right now they've surrendered involuntarily parts of their sovereignty to Europe, to China. Uh, you see people coming in and, and just taking over land and, and, and draining the, the, the many resources. I mean, Africa has enough resources. The world needs Africa, but Africa doesn't necessarily need the world. But but it's, it's able to play off these 55 countries. China could play off this one against that one because China has over a billion people. The, the most populous country in Africa is Nigeria, which has about 200 million. So you have one, this one big power playing off. You've got Europe playing us off. But once we have the United African States, which would be a global a global political entity, which Garvey envisioned. I don't say they had dreams. Garvey and Nkrumah had a vision, and it is our mission in our generation and the Pan-African Federalist Movement's mission to bring that vision into fruition. But once that happens, uh, now China will be dealing with a nation, a, a global nation that has 1.3 billion people and in, in climbing. Um, and it would be a completely different deal. I mean, that government will, will, will absorb the debt that, that all of the independent countries have, have, and then they would have to deal with directly with that government, uh, which would be able to, uh, which would be in a much stronger position to deal with the destiny and the, and the rights of African people in, on the continent and throughout the globe and ensure the, complete, the management of our resources in our best interest. So that's the, uh, the vision that we are uh, intending to uh, <clears throat> to make the, to bring into existence. This convention is a step in that direction. It's in preparation for the Congress, and the Congress is going to lay the foundations for the United African States. And we yeah. do have. Um, <clears throat> I need to interrupt you for a second, um, Brother Wanlimu. Um, we're we're kind of like out of time. Time. My other guests are in the studio, so I wanted to um, ask if you could give people the information about how to register for the conference and um and who the audience is that you're looking for and and then maybe just you know just give us some of the uh the names of the presenters cuz they're pretty impressive. Okay. Uh, if you want to register for the for the congress for the conference next week, go to our website which is www.cbpn.org backslash P A F M N O R A N. And I'm going to say it again and I'm going to say what each thing stands for. Uh, CBPM, that's Collective Black People's Movement, dot org, backslash, P A F M, uh, Pan African Fellows Movement, N O R A M, North America. Uh, one word. So uh, CBPM, <coughs> CBPM dot org, backslash, P A F M. N-O-R-A-M. You go directly to that website, and front and center is going to be a, a link you click to go to the form to, uh, where you could register for the conference. Uh, that's that. 
And some of the guest speakers, uh, we do have an impressive list of guest speakers and supporters. Uh, the daughter of Malcolm X, Malik Shabazz, is going to be there. Dr. Leonard Jeffries is going to be there. Sister Nakia Tiafa is going to be there, an outstanding young lawyer. Uh, a. Peter Bailey, I and, already and, mentioned. And also, and she has a new book out. Um, yes, she book. does. She has a new book out, which I have. Uh, Nakia Tiafa, the book is entitled Black Power, Black Lawyer, because she's an outstanding lawyer. Um, yeah, I just bought the book. And, but also, the, and last but not least, Renuku Rashidi is going to be at the conference. So it's, so we're really looking forward to a, a, a gathering of African people in North America uh, to, discern, to, to determine the role that African people in North America are going to be playing in the United African States. What rights are we going to have? And we open to, it's going to be a virtual conference. Uh, please register. And again, uh, you could uh, please please uh, register for the conference. And again, you could do that by www.cbpm.org backslash pafm north n o r a m. And my the number for the Pan the dedicated number for the Pan African Federalist Movement lasts is five one eight six four nine seven seven nine eight. That's the dedicated number for the Pan African Federalist Movement in North America. Sister Wanda. Right. Thank you. And then also, and, and also, you have your email address, unitedafrica2020 at aol.com. Yes, yes. You could get in touch with me directly by email, by, by that, that email, unitedafrica2020 at aol.com. Asante Sana, Sister Wanda, we're <laughs> talking to you again. Um, let us know when you're going to be back in, in Palm Coast so you can visit us again. My daughter uh, still remembers their visit and. Uh, and, uh, you know, we really enjoyed that. But thank you for this opportunity to talk about the Pan-African Federalist Movement in our convention. Oh, you're quite welcome. It was good speaking to you, too. And, yeah, give my greetings and my regards to, to your lovely wife and, and daughter. And, yeah, <clears throat> as soon as we can travel safely, I'll be visiting. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Look forward to that. And I'll see you at the conference. Okay. Looking forward to it next week. Right. <laughs> next week. That's right. Fifteenth, <laughs> yes. You take good care. Mm-hmm. Okay, you too. Thank you again, Asante Sana. Are oh, you welcome? Peace and blessings. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> good morning, Rick and Maya. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Wanda? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. So excited to be able to talk to both of you about critical resistance and the really wonderful um, art exhibit and auction presently up um, that I believe you um, are one of the curators, guest curators, Critical Resistance Imagine Freedom Artworks for Abolition. It's a benefit auction um, kicked off last week. And how much longer do people have to bid? Uh, Well, we're coming up now on about four days left uh, to Mm -hmm. bid on. We have over 75-plus international multidisciplinary artists that are participating in the auction, Um, and it's a a really beautiful, diverse group um, of amazing artworks that we're extremely excited to present. So it's – and it's been going well. So, um, yeah. It's it's great. We we're really um looking forward to continuing to see the bids come in and uh looking forward to also the the closing event programming that um we're putting together. It'll be a really exciting show. Mm-hmm. 
Right. We can give us more details on that. Um, you could do it now, or or you can do it after I read your bio. <laughs> oh, well, I can give it to you now. Um, okay. You know, the the benefit auction it's it started September 29th, and so it concludes on October 14th. Basically, we're saying the 13th. Um, but it concludes uh, by 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on October 14th. And uh, all the information can be found. We'd love for everyone to go to the website that was created for it, uh, imaginefreedom.art. And this gives you all of the information on uh, being able to uh, donate directly to Critical Resistance but it also gives you all of the information about the auction as well, specifically, including all of the artists that are participating. And we have an amazing host committee as well that's been assembled um, that's also made some amazing contributions to this auction to help bring it to life. So it's really, uh, we're really excited. It's an amazing event um, and timely uh Point in history where, um, you know, the support of an organization like Critical Resistance um, is really needed for them to continue the great work that they're doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I was reading that um, the live auction is beginning on Tuesday, October 13th at 6:30 Pacific time, as part of the virtual closing event that you mentioned. Um, Right. And um and I was wondering if you could tell us, you know, a little bit more about um what that entails and with regards to the the closing um uh programming because there's been some really good programming if you want to like maybe list some things that people have missed and what's coming up <laughs> so they don't miss any more. Um, yeah, so the closing so the the live auction programming event uh that includes seven specific artists that were chosen um, to these are the artists that you're able to bid live in real time. Um, we'll have an amazing auctioneer, Gabriel Butu, um, who's auctioneer extraordinaire. Um, he's amazing. And so um, during the programming, though, there'll be uh, co-MCs, uh, there'll be uh, movement elders and culture keepers like Stephen Canals and India Moore from Pose, Dr. Fred Moten, um, and Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and uh, actually also KQED Arts and the Black Joy Parade. They'll also be making some appearances during um, during this closing event as well. So it, it's a whole show that's set up. To, to support the ending of the auction with these seven specific artists that will be featured. Um, and you can bid in real time. And, you know, these are the artists uh, that have been chosen are some of the um, most amazing international artists, you know, have been making art for a long time. Um, and there are also a lot of Bay Area artists included in, in the silent auction as well. So that so we have Lava Thomas uh, that's participating, who's uh, you know given an amazing piece. There's Kentura Davis, 
who's having an amazing moment right now, Sean Theodore, who's the photographer out of Philadelphia, uh, award-winning photographer. Um, we also have uh, the Astor Gate with some amazing sculptures um, that, you know, were made uh, 18 years ago. So they're now, this is the first time that they're coming up for auction. Uh, we also have um, Paul and Peggy Sapulia, another amazing photographer who's having uh, an amazing moment. Um, and, you know, it's just we're so excited and the bids are really coming in, but we really want to see, you know, more of a push this week in these last few days uh, mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, to bring it home and and to mm-hmm. continue to, as far as critical resistance, being able to continue the work that they're doing in this moment is really what's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Critical resistance at 20 years old. So, Nick, how do you pronounce your last name? It's Nick Dorenzi. Nick Dorenzi, yeah. And, <laughs> and um, yeah, so you're a resident of San Francisco and a member of Critical Resistance Oakland. Um, you work in the media team on the media team for the No New San Francisco Jail Coalition, which recently won a historic battle for San Francisco to permanently close uh, county the county jail to look county jail two located at 850 Bryant Street. So um, um, Maya uh, Futrell, you know, you know, you're an independent curator, art consultant, advisor, and artist liaison, uh, currently living and working in Los Angeles, California. Um, how, Nick, tell us a little bit about Critical Resistance, and then uh, as a follow-up, Maya, I was wondering, how did you come to be participating as an independent guest curator for this this wonderful, amazing um, fundraising um, art event? Okay. So, Nick? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for uh, having us. Yeah, Critical Resistance. No problem. We... Resistance is a grassroots organization, and we do mm-hmm. uh, build movements to end the reliance of the interlocking systems of imprisonment, surveillance, and policing, which we define as the prison industrial complex. And we are looking to end the reliance on them as a response to political, social, and economic problems. Our approach combines organizing and advocacy to dismantle the current structures of imprisonment and policing changing how communities and decision makers understand punishment and safety and building new institutions and practices <clears throat> to transform and prevent interpersonal, communal, and social harm. So how we've been doing that in San Francisco is by ensuring that they will build a new jail and then also pushing decision makers to um, decriminalize uh, in San Francisco. So we did, thank you for highlighting our big win that we just had in September there is officially no one being held at A50 Bryant in County Jail 4, which is a huge, huge accomplishment for us. It's been going on since 2013 when the city originally wanted to um, build a new jail. The sheriff at that time had applied for funds, which would have uh, put San Francisco on a huge bill through the city, so they would have owed, owed the state millions of dollars. Luckily, we stopped that, so in 2015, we shifted focus to um, ensure that nobody was housed at 850 Bryant because 850 Bryant 
that building itself has been slated for demolition since for a few decades now because mm-hmm. it is seismically unsafe. So if there is a huge earthquake, that building is expected to fall because it's so decrepit. So we're glad that we've gotten people out of there that are being that were being forced to be there. So that's a huge win and a historical win for San Francisco, which we're really, really proud of. And now our coalition is uh, shifting our focus to more decriminalization than also um, to getting folks. The city right now is doing a huge push to, um, <clears throat> especially the sheriff's office, to increase uh, electronic monitoring, which we call ankle shackles. And there's a huge um, issue with those. The the company that they're trying to partner with uh, has a lot of uh, loss against them. And so we're telling them, you know, don't invest in more, you know, it's just imprisonment by a different name. We're saying don't invest in this. Keep on investing in community resources such as housing, healthcare, education, jobs, because that is really what's going to keep our community safe. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about. I know. I know. Critical resistance has has chapters um, um, mm-hmm. throughout the country, and I was wondering if you could tell us some some of the places where they are. Um, I was reading that critical resistance <clears throat> was founded in 1998 um, by well-known abolitionist organizers Rose Braz, Presente, um, Angela Y. Davis, and Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Um, and and I saw Ruth Wilson Gilmore's name come up for the closing of the um, um, of the auction. That is she gonna be um, present um, virtually at these closing um, activities um, events, Maya? Uh, yes, actually, she. Uh, I believe she will be a part of because it's it's. Um, you know, set up in a program style. Uh, she should be available um, live, uh, I believe, in the beginning of the program. Um, mm-hmm. So, as I said, as I said before, uh, we'll have a couple of uh, co-host MCs that will be, you know, that will move the program along, um, mm-hmm. and there'll be different videos that will play with speakers who will be featured. You know, during the show, um, mm-hmm. uh, in in addition to kind of spliced in with the uh, with the live auction bidding, as as mm-hmm. I mentioned, uh, Gabriel Butu, our auctioneer, uh, will be moving the program along as well as he talks about these these seven artists that you know that also includes um, I wanted to mention Hank Willis Thomas um, mm-hmm. and Wangari Masenge. They're also mm-hmm. a part of these seven artists that that have uh, presented two amazing pieces that are that are doing really well um, as far as bidding goes. Um, and so I, I came to be a part of this curatorial team. Um, I was invited to work on the team by Ashara Akundayo, who's the lead curator uh, on the auction. And so, uh, you know, she just presented me with information about the auction and what the objective was and what the main purpose and objective is for critical resistance and the work that they're trying to do um, and, you know, the fundraising efforts. And it just, you know, I couldn't turn it down. It was just, it was an amazing opportunity that I really wanted to be a part of. 
and um, and we've been working on this team for the last uh, six months now to bring this auction to life. So, yeah, it was really Ashara's, Ashara's uh, you know, invitation to me to be a part of this. Yeah, had you had you known Critical Resistance prior to Ashara's invitation? Mm, not really. I didn't know the details about it, um, but you know, knowing the background of Oakland, California, the home of the Black Panthers, um, you know, I needed to brush up on some information. But no, I didn't have a ton of information about all that critical resistance is involved in, and. You know, um, although, you know, Ashara was present at that first conference in 1998 as a graduate student. So, you know, her background with critical resistance is is deep. And um, so knowing that she's, you know, been involved in a part of this movement for since its inception was also pretty inspiring to me. So I wanted to, you know finally be a part of, um, and, and with art being, you know, my practice right now, it just made sense. And so, you know, as we assembled the host committee and chose the artists to uh, participate, you know, and it's, it's been a real contribution from the host committee members as well as these artists. They're donating their work. Um, and they're able to retain up to 30% of the sale of their works. Um, so they are receiving something back in return. Or they can donate 100% if they want. It's totally up to them. But um, it's still a, a big contribution, um, and a lot of the artists uh, and host committee members have, you know, gone out above and beyond with, as you mentioned, the programming that we've had during the week with live talks and Instagram lives and, you know, it's just, it's been really a rallying of this moment, a coming together to really bring everything full circle, especially what's, you know, happening across, what's happening across the globe right now. So it just, the timing is amazing. Um, And yeah, it's just, it's going really well. So this is um, a huge lift, and to be able to, I think, bring um, the auction together, which is completely online, um, of course, out of necessity, but online nonetheless, and partnering with Artsy has been also an amazing experience. I mean, they, they're a great organization that really knows how to put together an online auction, so... We couldn't be more excited. Right, yeah. Yeah, I was noticing um, some of the uh, the events like last uh, week, October 1st, <clears throat> there was a Cops Off Campus teaching against anti-blackness, the university and policing. Um, I think this was at, at UC Berkeley. And, um, I mean, online, of course, but <laughs> right. it was, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. UC. Um, and then um, the guest speakers, were from John Hopkins University, University of Chicago, UC Riverside, UC Santa Cruz. Um, and so anyway, it looks like it was pretty good. Did either of you all attend that? Um, I sat in for a little bit. 
on Facebook Live. I didn't see the whole show, but um, it looked like they had, you know, an array of dynamic speakers. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, I did hear, though, that it was a pretty powerful event. But, you know, I regret that I wasn't able to watch the entire thing. I I just kind of tapped in um, maybe for the last mm, 15 to 20 minutes or so. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it looked very impactful, very right. impactful, very inspired group of people. Um, but, yeah, I wasn't, I didn't see the entire, I didn't see the entire show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then there was another one. Um, oh, um, did you want to say something, Nick? Oh, no, I was just going to say I was able to tune in, and it was an amazing program. Um, oh, Bill and Rodriguez. Cool. Uh, Riverside did a great job. Um, I know they've been talking about that issue for a while, and then even connecting back to my time, I, I was a I'm a political science major from SF State, and that's actually how I got involved with COVID resistance. But during okay. my time, we were fighting for ethnic studies, and there was a hunger strike, and we were doing a lot of organizing. And there was um, well-known undercover police officers that would come on this and try to you know, observe what we were doing, and then also on campus and still going on campus there, um, there's a big uh, anti-Palestinian push, so they had a lot of their events being canceled, unfortunately. So mm-hmm. we definitely understand and, like, see that the campus police are used by administration to, you know, police what is being taught and to continue to perpetuate white supremacy within higher education. Um, so I'm glad that they're really doing this call to end policing on campuses. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Yeah, where I teach in the Peralta Community College District, um, it has happened. Um, there are there are no more police on campuses. It was actually the Sheriff's mm-hmm. Department, so looking at alternatives right now. Um, and then there was another webinar, um, Black and Indigenous Liberation Through Abolition, and that was also on October 1st. That was at 4 p.m., and, uh, and that featured um, Lou um, Cornum um, of the Red Nation, Muhammad uh, Shirk. Uh, uh, I've seen that. He's, I've gotten emails from him. <laughs> from Critical Resistance, uh, Tanetta Muhammad, um, BYP 100, and, uh, and Woods Irvin, Critical Resistance. Um, and that was moderated by Sheila Nashat, Reclaim the Block. So did either of you all go to that one? I didn't, no. I unfortunately was not able to make it to that one. Okay. Well, that one's available, folks. Um, I don't know where it lives, but um, you'll be able to see that one <laughs> if you missed it. So um, so anyway, uh, Nick, um, thank you, Maya, for, for um, what you shared uh, right before I started talking. Um, so, Nick, tell us yeah. uh, more about Critical Resistance, its founding, what was going on in 1998 when these these uh, activists, these these conscious women, got together and said, "We got to do something, like organized." So, so what um what was going on in 1998, and how many chapters have been um uh have been established since then? I was there at the uh, that that uh, conference at UC Berkeley. I was actually on a panel about journalism with um, Keelan Yasha, revolutionary um, journalist uh, activist. Um, who is now an ancestor. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Um, yeah, so at that time, California was 
really, you know, getting into a big boom of building and building uh, prisons and um, state facilities. So people started thinking critically of, you know, what, what, how does this continue to push white supremacy? So really, it wasn't being challenged to, um, you know, people for these um, institutions to be built. And so the this is a big push to kind of figure out, like the conference was to figure out what is the issues, like how is this a systemic issue, and then how do we fight against it? And so that's where the prison abolition came out of, and they start, started to organize against, um, you know, the state investing money into cages and more policing. So that was a really big, uh, was a really big idea at the moment. It was, you know, abolition wasn't being talked about, and now fast forward to 2020, and you've got people in the streets yelling about abolition and screaming out for abolition. So we've come mm-hmm. a long, long way, long way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Really amazing. Since then, right now, we have a chapter here in the Bay Area. We call it the Oakland chapter, but I see it more as the Bay Area chapter because, you know, the, how the Bay works, we're all together as one. Um, then we've got our L.A. chapter down in L.A. They've been involved in the Justice L.A., um, mm-hmm. organization going down there, working to stop the expansion of county jails down there. Um, mm-hmm. We have a chapter in Portland, Oregon, and they've been really busy right now. They've been working on a huge program to um, get everyone in all of the jails a written letter, so that they're, um, you know, so they get some correspondence and know that people care. People like um, create uh, relationships with folks inside. And also, you know, a huge thing that we see right now going on with COVID is that more and more, uh, you know, policies within jails and prisons are cutting back on visitation time, cutting back on uh, call call time, putting people in uh, isolation as like a way to keep them safe, which you can't be safe in a jail or prison. That's uh, not possible because they're dangerous places and not good to be. You can't get, can't get healthy in a cage. Um so they've been doing that big push to try and, you know, build more connections with folks inside, with folks outside organizing. And they also had a huge push during uh, the wildfires they were having up there to make sure that folks weren't left behind and that um, they were thought of during the evacu- evacuation. Um, here, and then we also have a chapter in New York. In New York, they have been doing uh, prisoner writing as well, writing to folks inside, and they had a, hu- a big, robust uh mail night that they were doing there and mm-hmm. yeah we also do um correspondence inside right now the no new sf jail coalition we uh did a big campaign we're asking folks inside of county jails in san francisco what they would what their demands are looking like and what they would like us to work for them and then also we gave everybody information about the new um the new ruling on that folks that are in, inside get the stimulus check. So we wanted to make sure that everybody inside got information on that in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. So what happened with that? Did um, people who were inside get the stimulus um, uh, check? Did they get the money? So right now um, you'll see probably throughout most of the nation there's a big um, information push campaign so folks inside know about it. Um, you know, we wouldn't expect the state to want to tell them about it, so we need to take it into our own hands and tell them about it. 
So mm-hmm. right now, luckily, there was it was kind of a quick turnaround. They wanted to have everything in by the 15th of October, but luckily they pushed it back to, I believe, October 30th is when you have to file. And mm-hmm. there is we, – we mailed in forms. We've heard the best way to do it is through the 1040 form. Um, we've mailed it in. You can call out to some organizations, and they will help you with um, getting that information done as well over the Internet. But from what we've heard is that the best way is to actually fill out the physical form and mail it in to the, to the IRS. Um, so that, that's where we're at right now. With that, so and hopefully how, everybody – sorry? No, go ahead. Go ahead and finish your thoughts, and I, I can hold my oh, question. Everybody will be able to get things in time, and with that little bit, a couple extra weeks to get the uh, forms in, people will be able to get those uh, stimulus. Hmm. So how, like, for instance, for families that are advocating for, um, for, for incarcerated loved ones, how, how, do they get, like, how do they get the forms and things like that? Is there um, information, like is there an email or is there a person that they can talk to at Critical Resistance to figure out how to do all this? Yeah, so right now with our, um, right here in San Francisco specifically, um, we have a coalition partner community resource initiative they're a member of our coalition, and they have a hotline that they have set up to answer questions and help navigate the process. Um, mm-hmm. And their phone number is 415-226-7210. And the hours for that hotline are between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. They'll be doing it seven days a week. If you don't get a pickup on the first time, feel free to call back. You know, they're getting a lot of calls from what we hear. And... Um, that's the best way um, if you're in the city. And if you're not, you know, give them a call, and I'm sure they can um, give you answer some of your questions or let you know where to call specific to where you're at. But, um, yeah, that number is a great resource, and Community Resource Initiative is, is great, folks. They're doing great work, and they're able to set up this hotline real quick, and um, it sounds like it's been real, real helpful and successful so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then um, for the letter writing, is the Bay Area chapter doing anything of that, like that? And if people, what if they want their loved one to get a letter? Um, how do how do we how do you do that? So for um, for for critical resistance, just do us an email right now because of COVID. You know, we've had to adjust how we do some of our um, mailing. We're mainly doing it all internally right now. Mm-hmm. But if you give us a, give us an email. Um, you can either email nosfjail at curbprisonspending.org or you can just email critical resistance and we can get in touch with you. Um, we usually go through a little introduction to kind of like get an understanding of abolition and what we're working for and then um, and then we'll jump into like getting uh, getting volunteers all like that. Yeah. So what's the critical resistance email? Uh, it's PR Oakland at criticalresistance.org. Okay. Is there a phone number? Um, not right now. We don't have a lot of folks in the office right now because of uh, COVID. So email is the best way to get in contact with us at the moment because it's more remotely done. Okay, yeah. And congratulations on the new big space. How's it going? It's been what? Has it been two years now? Uh, yeah, we're still working on the space, um, you know, because of COVID, some timelines gone back. But we're right now. I know we we hosted the the Black Organizing Projects um, 
party for after they got the big win in Oakland of getting police out of the out of the um, out of the school system. So that's a huge, huge win, um, which has been great. Uh, we also are we have a uh, mutual aid fridge at the at the at the location, so folks can um, go there and get free food. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's kind of where we're at. We're still located in downtown Oakland for the time being as we continue to build out the space. But it is going very well, and we're very happy that we were able to acquire space, and it's going to be a beautiful home for a lot of movement organizations in the future. Mm-hmm. So where where is the mutual aid fridge? Is that at the new location, or is that the old location? It is at the new location. What's the, what's the address? Let me, let me double-check on that real quick. Okay. And then also I wanted to know what the hours are and, yeah, and the contact something, <laughs> email, phone number, something. <laughs> yeah, my next guests are in the studio. So um, so while we um, wait for Nick to uh, to find that information, Maya, um, wow, yeah. I was just looking at your bio. It is pretty impressive. Um yeah, you've been. Oh, thank you. You definitely have been doing. You've been doing art for a minute, and like some really serious art, and you know, particularly um, facilitating, um, you know, sort of the exposure of other artists, you know, to work. But it sounds like um, you said you were inspired um, by your your um, your mother, okay. your late mother, who mm-hmm. was a, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, who was a social worker and a public health educator, cultural advocate, and practicing astrologer. Uh, uh-huh. And her and your multidisciplinary abstract artist father. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. Who yeah. also has um um he has some work in the auction that I presented. Oh, um, nice. yeah. So <laughs> yeah, so uh, there he has um two uh, art furniture sculptures that uh, mm. people can bid on. So yeah, so yeah, art is. I've been working in the creative sector, you know, for for a long time now, and um, it basically it starts at home, <laughs> you know. Um, mm-hmm. Art has started at home for me, and um, I just I continue to work in creative industries, and so uh, this all makes sense, you know, for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's five days left. There's five days and three hours and 53 minutes and 38 <laughs> seconds, you know, for people to still, um, you know, to go to imaginefreedom.art and, you know, check out all of the details on this auction to go to rc.net and build, uh, go, you know, go ahead and bid on all of the pieces, um, take a look at, there's something really for everyone. And speaking of, you know, artists um, on the inside, we do have uh, Bob Williams, who has some beautiful pieces in which people are are bidding on. Um, He's the only artist that we have that is on the inside that's a part of this auction. Um, Mm -hmm. And his work is is doing well. There's, There's been some great interest in his work. So we're excited to have, you know, been able to include, um, an artist on the inside uh, to be a part of the auction also. Oh. And so, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so that's that's been something that um, that was important to be able to to include, um, you know, as a part of the diverse array of artists that that are participating. Uh, so we're excited that we're able to do that. Um, and again, you know, we have a work from the great uh, Emory Douglas, you know, who's a founding member of the Black Panther Party. Who is, you know, his artwork is. It was the face of of the Black Panther Party. So Emory has a piece. Um, we have Mika Marple, who's also a Bay Area artist. Uh, Christine Wang, Melanie Cervantes, Leslie Dime Lopez. Um, all of these amazing artists and artist organizers uh, that are who are collaborating with CR um, and have advanced abolition through their craft. Uh, supporting CR projects, and so, you know, this is one more project that they're lending their artistic talents to, and so Mm -hmm. we just, yeah, we really want to, you know, drive people to the site and to Artsy and to really take in these beautiful, beautiful artworks. Right, yes, yes. Um, Nick, did you find the information? Yeah, so the location is at 494 44th Street, so that is Tomesco and 44th in Oakland. And I'm still looking on uh, Telegraph, sorry, Telegraph and 44th in Oakland. And, yeah, we don't have time to show you nailed down, but definitely go by the building, check it out. We've got art in the windows, and we also have beautiful murals that have been done on it, so it's looking real beautiful. But definitely go by and check it out, 44th and Telegraph. So, so the time for the um, uh, the um, the food um, giveaway. What time is that? Uh, I'm not entirely sure on the timing. I wasn't able to get uh, nailed down on the timing of that. I would mm-hmm. guess probably during the week, probably during the weekdays, maybe all week, all week round. But unfortunately, I don't, we don't have um, those nailed down necessarily. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm talking about the, for the mutual aid fridge. So maybe you could um, get back to me. Maybe you could find out because yeah, I tried. Yeah, I mean, because I don't know what I don't know where people might be coming from, but I know people won't have time mm-hmm, to just mm-hmm. go back and forth, wondering, okay, is this the time? Is this the day? Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. transportation might be an issue. Um, you know, because people, uh, a lot of people are, um, you know, sort of. Um, you know, having having um, a lot of uh, challenges. You know, sort of maintaining. You know, their their housing, um, and and their food security and their safety. You know, and then they might have children that are in school, but not really in school. They're online, so it's a whole lot to juggle. You know, while you're trying to maintain your health. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, let me know um, when you find out, and and I'll make sure that I. I posted and I let people know. Well, this has been a really wonderful conversation um, with both of you. Thank you so much. My other guests are in the studio. And I wondered, Maya, do you want to give your contact information so people can stay in touch and stay abreast of what you're up to? Uh, yeah, well, I my Instagram, sure. And, you know, thank you for having us. This is uh, a great opportunity. I'm so happy to be able to speak to you today. 
Um, you can check my Instagram. I'm at Influencer Inc. on Instagram. Um, and also for Maya Arts Management, um, that's the label of my of my art practice. Um, I just set up an Instagram, so that's Maya Arts Management. You can look me up on Instagram there. I'm just getting ramped up with starting posting and you know, I'll be posting there on on um, events and upcoming projects and collaborations and artists that I'll be working with. Um, and in the meantime, you know, you're welcome to reach out to me on on email, and that's mayafutrell16 at gmail dot com for any further information. Um, but I'm always available via Instagram on Influencer Inc. And um, I do check my DMs. And um, and that that Instagram is really where I post a lot of uh, the gallery visits, artists, um, artists in studio visits. Um, it's really a focus on art. So there, you know, and other people and other events and really places that I go and things that I do, and that's what that's all about. So I'm I'm happy to have. You know, come on over to my Instagram and see what's going on. <laughs> um, and you know, and and but right now, in addition to that, um, the focus is is on is on CR, it's on critical resistance, and and this auction. So I'm really um, working to promote that. Um, you know, in tandem with with CR. Um, and we're really just looking, you know, to finish strong with a, a we have one last week here, um, you know, to bring in uh, some more attention to uh, not only critical resistance, but also to the artists that are participating that, have, again, have given, you know, have donated their time and energy and, um, you know, uh, Everything you know, and in in some cases, you know, a lot of uh, our host committee uh, people have also donated. Um, you know, in addition to their time, they've donate they've donated funds, and so that's going directly to critical resistance, so that again they can continue this work. And um, so yeah, imaginefreedom.art. You know, go check it out right. um, and. And that's also, you know, where you can find out more about the upcoming programming that we have that's still happening in, in real time. So, um, you know, it's an exciting time. All righty. Yeah, imaginefreedom.art. And, um, and then I also noticed that um, you can also um, get there by uh, going to Critical Resistance um, as well. Um, yes. Because that's how I found it, criticalresistance.org forward slash Imagine Freedom 2020. And then um, on that page, you can RSVP for the closing event. um, And you can also um, place a bid, you know, go to that page. And you can also look at the exhibition catalog, which is viewable online. And um, you can also, um, let's see, yeah, the catalog has features poetry by Fred Moulton, Letters from yes. Critical Resistance and the Curator, essays from Critical Resistance, artwork, bios, and more. So that's that's a really good. You should go check it out. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, the online catalog really, really is, good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're really proud of the the online catalog, um, which will be uh, in print as well. So not only will right, it live online, but mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. so that's exciting. It's a, a beautiful catalog mm-hmm. that um, mm-hmm. we put together. So excited about right. that. Thanks for mentioning that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, thank you both for. Um, for joining us, we've gone over quite a bit, but it was it was a good conversation, and uh, let's definitely stay in touch. Particularly, uh, Nick, um, look forward to other conversations, and congratulations on shutting down that that jail in San Francisco before it <laughs> fell on somebody. Um, so it fell on a lot of bodies. <laughs> yeah, All right, you take good care, yeah, both amazing. of you. Amazing. Right, thank you so much. Oh, you're yeah, welcome. thank you Peace so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's see. So Kim and Devorah, let's see. (laughs) Good morning, both of you. Thank you so much for not leaving. (laughs) How are you? (laughs) Great. Good morning. Very good. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. So, Devorah, um, you're 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 always uh, such a wonderful guest on the show, and it's it's always a real pleasure uh, speaking to you. And Kim, Dr. Kim McMillan, gosh, um, you're always you know doing so many interesting things, and you know now you know with your um, your um, uh, Afrofuturism, black uh, speculative. Um, work, you know, sort of looking at, okay, imagine, like we look at imagine freedom, right, you know, the uh, something that, you know, uh, critical resistance is looking at through art, and so you imagine, like, what, imagine a world where black people, you know, um, are celebrated instead of, um, you know, sort of targeted for all this malfeasance and all of this harm, and, uh, yeah. I love it. So people... Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So, um, so Kim, um, maybe you could tell us why we're here this morning. What are we going to be talking about? <laughs> First of and all, then, and then I hope yes, uh-huh. I'm hoping we get to read um, Devore Majors, or Devore would consider reading some of her poetry. Devore is a mm. part of the um, the three part series uh, Afrofuturism in the Black Speculative Arts, and it, and it begins this Sunday. Uh, with a panel discussion headed by Daryl Stover, and which includes Ishmael Reed, um, who is well known to this channel, Sheree Renee Thomas, who was the editor of Dark, the Dark Matter Anthology, which basically just runs a gamut on um, what Afrofuturism is, what a black speculative arts, and Ronaldo Anderson, who was who was the editor of Afrofuturism 2.0, The Rise of Astral Blackness. I love that. And he's just brilliant, just a brilliant man. And, um, of course, Kenitra Brooks, who writes a column for The Roots on um, a Lovecraft country and uh, has the lemonade reader, Beyonce Black Feminism, and spirituality a must read. So it's going to be a really, really wonderful um, program, and it starts 2 p.m. 
Pacific Standard Time, and it's going to be broadcast on Zoom, um, Facebook Live, YouTube, and uh, uh, hopefully Instagram. So mm. we really, and everything is under the same name, Afrofuturism and the Black Speculative Arts. So you can find it on any, in any of those places. And I just feel lucky to be a part of it. And this is the first part of the series. Mm-hmm. Sounds like that's going to be really, really, really fun! Wow, and uh, and because um, it's uh, you know being broadcast through um, Facebook Live and um, in Zoom, that means that um, you know it's going to be a document that will be around. So people can revisit it, and yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in anticipation of the next one. So, do you already have all three dates uh, set up for for the series? Oh, oh yes, the, the the oh my god. Um, November 8th is like, to me, is going to be a love fest. Of course, it's being moderated by Daryl Stover again, who teaches a class at North Carolina State University on jazz and Afrofuturism. But Samuel Delaney, who's considered like the godfather mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Afrofuturism, he's a winner of four Nebula Awards and two Hugo Awards for his excellence in science fiction. And he was inducted in the Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame in 2002, this this man is just brilliant as far as I'm concerned. And we're going to have the wonderful Eugene Redmond, who mm. writes about an early Afrofuturist. Um, uh, and he he has, uh, excuse me, Henry Dumas. And mm. um, he has a, a, a reprint of his, uh, of Dumas's poetry, and it's called... Um, Knees of a Natural Man, the Selected Poetry of Henry Dumas. And he's a very important voice. And then Hope Wabuki, she is a Ugandan, uh, American, Ugandan um, African-American, excuse me, a Ugandan-American. And mm-hmm. um, she's also Assistant Professor of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And she writes a critical essay. She wrote an incredible essay for the uh, Los Angeles Review of Books on Afrofuturism. And she's also a cultural uh, critic for NPR. And then we have, of course, the wonderful Vacha. And so she writes on the Afrofuturistic themes all the time. And Dr. Ayana Jameson, and she's the founder of the Octavia E. Butler Legacy Network, which is incredible. Um, you can find it online. And then we have Dr. Grace Gibson. She's a black future feminist pop culture scholar and has written quite a bit on Afrofuturism. And she also speaks with regard to race and gender within comic books. So there's going to be a lot. Oh, and, and also Dr. Gwen Paris, who who is just a wonderful, wonderful um, writer. He's going to be there November 8th. And he just um, has a new, well, a reprint of his um, Dragon's Air that will be coming out in 2021 um, through Outland Entertainment. So this is just a wonderful group on November 8th. And, of course, December 13th, Devor will be reading Ayodeli Nzinga, Leonard Moore, uh, Michael War. Avacha, and, and so many others, and they will be strictly uh, poems on Afrofuturism, and it will be curated. 
And so people are only going to be reading one or two poems. We wanted to show a real, a, just a, a whole movement in different areas and how people express and write about um, Afrofuturism through poetry. And you recommended um, a, a, a young um, lady, Sajaba, is, am I pronouncing yeah. it correctly? Sajabu, Sajabu. Oh, yeah, grandmother Sajabu. Sajabu. Mm-hmm. And I spoke huh. to her and was so impressed with her art and, and how she depicts African-American women through Afrofuturism. I'm very excited about her. So, and, and okay. everything yeah, that... She's, uh, yeah, she's a... Uh, yeah, she's... um, I don't know. She's been doing this work for a long time. She and her daughter, uh, uh, Professor Sanana, um, they uh, they have a, a group called Straight Out Scribes, and they've yeah. been performing for a while. Yeah, Devorah, you know them, right? The Jabu and Sanana. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah, because yeah, <laughs> yeah, when you and Oprah were doing, um, you know, uh, Daughters of Yam, um, I think you're you're your your ensembles crossed each other, right? You all were doing work yeah, together yeah, at the same time. Yeah, and uh, uh, what Sister Spit, too. I think out of uh, Sacramento. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, yeah, yeah. And even, um, even you know, um, our group, Black Poets with Attitudes, with Avacha and Abimbala Adama and uh, Beverly Jarrett, you know, we were sort of like in that mix for a little bit um, as well. But go ahead, Kim. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, I, I'm just, and I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be with two of my favorite people, you and Devora. And I, I sat down with Devora a couple of a couple of a month or two ago, and listened mm-hmm. to her poetry, and without realizing just how Afrofuturistic it was. And I'm just curious, Devora. Were you planning? Was that always a part of the of your book, um, Calicia's daughter? Because it's uh, yeah, not in the conscious way you're saying. I think that there's just a part of me. I do write sci-fi and speculative fiction, so that's just a part of my kind of energy or gestalt or whatever. But I think in terms of the poetry, I'm very focused on where we sit in the universe, where, uh, where, where humans sit, specifically where humans of African descent sit in the universe, not just in, a, in the city, let's say, you know, that, that it's a bigger thing. Where did we come from? How did we get here? You know, what are our powers? And within that, I think there's a sense of coming out. And I also have this, this fact that I would like us to be here in the future. <laughs> yes, and so I think to do that, one has to see the future in that way, you know. Uh, uh, that's one of the things that science fiction does. Uh, it, it makes you visualize what the future could be. And traditionally, there hasn't been a whole lot of people of color in the futures that have been envisioned. So I think that that stuff, that kind of thinking that I'm doing just kind of mixed in with some of my poetry. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I was just thinking when you were when you were saying, uh, Devorah, about um, sort of where the humans of African descent specifically sit in the universe, and you said you'd like us to be here in the future. And I was wondering, for both of you, um, 
this whole idea of even even imagining a future, um, you know, from the present. Um, I don't know. I don't know if people have even had time to think about the past, trying to like maintain a presence, uh, literally maintain a presence. Um, when when did we like? When did the the idea of a future, or even projecting toward a future, um, or you know, or even even designing a future, like in your imagination? Sort of. Sort of. When did that like? Like, are there any like sort of um, uh, land like landmarks, but benchmarks around around that? Like, oh yeah, that was a that was a moment where there was a lot of imagining going on, you know, about the future, you know, of black people. Like, oh yeah, there's another moment, and I think this is one of those moments too. And maybe that's why the whole idea of um, Afrofuturism and and all of that, when it's not a new thing, but that language is a new way of framing it. Yeah, That's a great I think, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote a short story in what, the 1920s? Mm-hmm. And uh, this comet hits New York City and, and uh, it looks like everybody's been destroyed but this black man and he saves a white woman. Hmm. And she's like, oh my God, you saved me, you saved me. How could I ever been a racist? You know, oh, this is wonderful. And so they're they're going and seeking to see if anybody else survived, and they find out that the comet did not survive, did not kill the world or even the United States. It just decimated New York and the surroundings. And she's like, oh, I can be racist again. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, wow. Point is, really? Yeah, it's kind oh. of cold, but the point. That's the point really cold, that, but it's, it's so true, right? Like, uh, you know, it's a choice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. It's a choice. But but, yeah. but but when you think about that, it's 100 years ago or close to 100 years ago. Uh, W.E.B. Dois was looking at it and looking at where would we be in the future in terms of race and racism and like that, right? And mm-hmm. he was obviously somewhat at least within this story, somewhat pessimistic about the situation. But I think that that, <laughs> that kind of ideal is, has then permeated uh, a, a lot of things, and it really um, uh, does moments of hope. I know that I certainly was, for my time, blessed to, to you know, be a young uh, teenager, preteen and then teenager when the Panthers arose mm-hmm. because uh, it was very future. This is what we're going to be. This is how we're going to be. This is what we can accomplish. And I think it made you think, oh, things aren't going to always be that way. And I think a lot of times, even as people of African descent, we have to remember um, we were in Africa, which was a mixed blessing. You know, I think that we always want to make everything perfect and if everything was perfect, we never would have gotten stolen because we would have been so united on the continent, you know. So there were issues. But then we, those of, we were stolen and we came here and really enormous parts, more than we are maybe aware of or acknowledge of who we were, we were able to maintain culturally and like that. And then our ancestors who were stolen saw a future of freedom and fought for it. And that's why we're free now, mm-hmm. because they perceived a future. They didn't say, we've always, well, some did, some did. But a whole lot was not like, oh, we've always been slaves, we're always going to be slaves, mm-hmm. you know. There's and so I point. think that, 
that uh, uh, that those ideals have in some ways always been around. It's just now we're in a time where there is space travel and we humans have been to the moon and they are sending things out to Mars and so on and so forth. So that now we're looking at the future in a broader aspect than we did before. But I think it's something that we've always kind of done, but I think Afrofuturism asserts it, you know, claims it mm-hmm. in a different way. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I agree yeah. with that. And I also wanted to um, add that as a young person growing up, um, as an adolescent doing Martin Luther King, um, the March on Washington, and being very aware um because I lived in a segregated community um, during a part of the civil rights uh, movement. Well, I, I was, you know, you wonder, what is going to happen? I remember sitting in a room and about 10 or 11 years old when Martin Luther King was assassinated, and I was living in Hawaii, and being a really, probably a, a stupid kid, I I felt... I just was crying, and I wanted so badly to not be in Hawaii. I wanted to be at a place where I could do something. And I was 10 or 11 years old. I just wanted to be with people who might feel as heartbroken as I did. And I'm sure they were heartbroken everywhere, but I just felt a little cut off, you know, being on the island. and And... I wondered what was going to happen to us as a people. And for my lifetime, that was one of the moments when I wondered about us as a race. You know, how would we get through? There had been so much that had been put on the shoulders of Martin Luther King to help us heal, to somehow remove racism from America. And that's too much for anyone, and it wasn't going to happen. But as a, as a little kid... I had so much hope at, at that point because you you don't see it now necessarily with black people, but I remember watching the television and watching people scream in anger at, at African-American kids being bussed into their schools. And oh, I yeah. was shocked. Why would people hate us? Why would they do crazy things or... I remember reading and speaking to Belva Davis, the the incredible newscaster, the first African-American female newscaster in the West Coast. And she spoke about being at one of those events and, and in the South and seeing the hatred. And she said, I just wanted to walk up to people and ask why. And, and hopefully we could get dialogue. And she said she walked up, and the woman just said she's about to see the woman sit right in her face. And mm-hmm. I, I think America has so far to go. And we, I think Black Lives Matter. To me, that is my Afrofuturism in the present time, because there's mm-hmm. so much where they have a vision of a new world. One where the black bodies do matter, and so I I feel like 
and what in some ways we're very on track and then for, for a new world and I'm hoping that that continues no matter what happens with regard to our election. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I agree and I think it will, you know. Yeah. I think it will. I, I think so too. You know? Um the same kind of break that we saw with all races in the 60s, we're seeing again with all races where people stepping up and saying, no matter how frightened they are, that this should not be. This is not the world we want to live in. You know? Yeah. And yeah. Afrofuturism and the slack speculative arts, the speculative arts, what they do through the artwork, through through the writing, I believe they're way showers to not only change universe here, a world here, but in all the universes. It's showing us that the myriad myriad of ways that we can overcome, that we are giants. We are wonderful. And we have a brilliance that hasn't even been discovered yet. I will be honest, I love the black speculative arts. I see images that I've always wanted to see with regard to blackness. And it's like, I, I just want more people keep on writing, keep on talking about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking that, you know, people that are, um, you know, that are sort of, you know, this distancing is probably um, creating some different kind of work. Um, have have you noticed that, um, Devora or or Kim? Um, you know this. You know, depending on your level of aloneness, like if you are sheltering in place and you have family there, then that's one thing. But if you're sheltering in place in a place where you're the only person, unless you leave the the house, and because of the um, in California, you know, we have in Northern California, we have this this fluctuating level of of uh, clean air, you know. Sometimes it's dangerous to go out. Sometimes it's okay unless you're like young or older or have pre-existing conditions around, you know, um, around lungs or around respiratory or heart. Whether or not you should go out. So, um, so then you're stuck in the house because you can't go out because the air is dirty. So, um, have you noticed a sort of any any level of um, uh, or different kinds of writing or or being creative in different kind of ways because of this um, this imposition of of solitude? Hmm. Okay. Well, I don't know because it would be somewhat personal because the writing that's being done now isn't isn't by and large out there yet. You know. Um, uh, because we still have the same issues. I mean, certainly online has uh, helped. There's a, there's a wonderful women's magazine, Zora, out of Medium, that I think is really great, that does a lot of black writing, not particularly speculative fiction, though. But I think that, that um, you're trying to, the ideas of how one writes, and then you get, how do you get the work actually out there, is another thing. I would think it would make a difference. Uh, I know that I spent um, the first two two months alone. 
I saw almost nobody else. I saw my daughter would come by, you know. And it was a very it was a very dramatic change for me. Uh because of that, and I wasn't going out. I started out actually um, sick, not with COVID, but sick. For the first couple of weeks when we had to be inside, and then, you know, it was like, and then I was like a high-risk person. I'm like, oh, no, I can't go out. And, uh, it certainly did make me think differently, and I think it did. It, it brings different issues to mind um, in terms of that and in terms of looking at where are we going to be and how are we going to be in you know, uh, um, in the future. But for me, because I'm now, uh, hopefully only for the next two or three months maximum, uh, living in Antioch, uh, which has a very strong conservative. And, uh, you know, people were talking about when the the rebellions uh, were going on over George Floyd and such in, in, in terms of fire and destruction, not counting the counter-pole agent provocateurs that were really doing some of the violence, <laughs> and it wasn't just black people destroying things. But um, 